This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Right before the show begins, there's always, no matter how much prep you do, there is always a little scramble right before the show begins. In the couple minutes before, it's one of those things. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything like it. Like you know, I've been to the Olympics. I've watched the hundred meter runners as they warm up and they prepare for like you know an hour before they're about to run a ten second race. I watch them when they get loose. They get to the track. They're stretching. They're warming up. They're going through their progressions, and you know I, they always look like. Nothing's happening faster than than they want it to happen. Even when, you know, all eight lanes are there, they're at the Olympic track, getting set in the blocks. They all kind of know when the race is going to start. And nobody's scrambling around in the, in the minute or two before the race going, oh, wait, I didn't tie my shoes. No. But in radio, it's different. There's, there, like, it's a moving target. There's always a little bit of a scramble right before the show, and I got a, I got a uh, call right before the show from ESPN, and I've been efforting, as you know, I've been trying to get Kirk Herbstreit on the show. I've been trying to get him on the show for a couple weeks, and with College Game Day being in Salt Lake City for Oregon, Utah, and it being the second time in three weeks that game day would be around an Oregon game, I was I was like, this is the week. Like, if Herbie's going to come on, and we're going to talk to this guy who's at the center of Thursday night football with Al Michaels on Amazon, and Saturday football for the uh, second time in three weeks, like, this is the time to get Kirk Herbstreet on. I've got a lot I want to talk to him about. This is the week, right? You know, a week before the playoff rankings come out. They're, they're out a week the first set of rankings come out a week from today, and so here we are, like one week away from Halloween. we got to talk about Halloween, of course, on the show, but I've been trying to get Herb Street, and finally ESPN this morning, ESPN emailed me and said, we don't know, he's still checking his schedule, he really wants to come on, but he has Thursday night football, and then they wanted to have him on tomorrow's show, and I said, no, I really want him Friday. I don't want Herb... Herb Street, like, distracted by, he's got a Thursday night game to call, but let's talk about the Saturday game. No, no, no. I want him on Friday's show, and I wanted him right off the top of the show on Friday. And so ESPN got back to me today just a minute or two before the show and said, Herb Street's in. He's coming on Friday's show. We'll have him here at 3 o'clock. So if you are a 3 o'clock hour listener on Friday, you're going to want to make an appointment. You're going to want to be here. Kirk Herbstreit will be here. We'll talk all about game day. We'll talk about the, the fiasco involving Washington State. We'll talk about the landscape of college football. We'll talk about his ascension in broadcasting to doing more than just college football. 
and he'll be fresh off the Thursday night game with Al Michaels, so we'll have that to talk about, and then we will uh, spin it into the weekend matchups across college football and certainly in the Pac-12 conference. So Herb Street, Friday, 3 o'clock. No matter how much prep I do, phone's going to ring right before the show, and it's going to be something, and I'm I'm just glad it was that kind of something. So we're getting Herb Street. By the way, they tried – they asked me, you know, do you want Corso? Do you want McAfee? Do you want, you know, I said, I'd take, I'll take uh, Pat McAfee as a backup, but I wanted Kirk Herbstreet first and foremost. And, Stephen, tell me if I'm wrong. Like, I just think there's more interest in what Herbstreet has to say than, than McAfee, who is kind of a one-trick guy on, on uh, game day and, frankly, isn't for everyone. Yeah, I think the one thing that McAfee would have going for him is – the fact that you, you know, you didn't really go at him, but you wrote that piece about him about the Washington State thing. I went at him. I went at him a okay, bit. you went yeah. at him a little bit. So I think it would be more interesting to see just how he reacts to that because you know he would probably say something back to you and see what happens. But I think if you actually want to talk about on the field stuff and like the actual stories, I think Kirk Herbstreit is one of the best guys to get for college football. So I'm with you. I would rather hear Herbie. Uh, I think McAfee would be just. You know, I like McAfee. I, I I listen to him sometimes. I, I pull his clips and stuff, and I listen to him. But uh, I think the interview with Herbie is way better. I think Herb Street's smarter, and I think he can talk about more things. And I think with McAfee, we're having a conversation. With Herb Street, we're having like a conversation about a multitude of things that ranging from the college football playoff rankings that will be out next Tuesday to Oregon, Utah, the game you know that's happening on Saturday that he'll be at, uh, the game day experience. All of that stuff. We could talk about Thursday night football and working with Al Michaels. Why that isn't working for some people? I have not been impressed with that that tandem in the broadcast booth on Thursday night. So I'll ask him about that. Sort of, you know, how how that chemistry is unfolding. Is it getting better? You know, what is that like to work with Al Michaels one day and then then you're in, you're in the broadcast booth the next day with somebody else? And so uh, we'll talk to Herb Street on Friday about that at three o'clock. Uh, today's show. I told you big guests all week. Kyle Whittingham, Utah football coach, will be with us coming up in about 20 minutes. Uh, We're going to talk about, obviously, the USC-Utah finish. Uh, That game, like, for anybody who loves theater, like, if you love going to theater and going to see live performance, or you are somebody who likes to read books, that Utah-USC game on Saturday, I keep telling people it was like a three-act play. Might have been more. But it was like, you know, you have this establishing in Act 1 of, of what the problem is. And the, and the situation was that Utah and USC, for the last four meetings, have just locked horns and been very even, compelling games, two of the best teams in the conference. But for some reason, USC can't get over on Utah. And then in Act 2, USC actually did get over on Utah, pick six, Big punt return. Caleb Williams scores on one play. USC's in the driver's seat. Utah's starting a pig farmer at quarterback. They've got a safety play in running back. They're in real trouble, and yet they found a way out of it. And in, in Act 3, they find a way out of it. They kick a field goal. They win the damn thing. So I want to ask Kyle Whittingham what it was like to be part of that, what he sees as he looks forward to this weekend, Oregon visiting Rice-Eccles Stadium. And by the way, what is Rice-Eccles Stadium worth? What is it worth from a standpoint of home point advantage or home court advantage or home field advantage? I did a little bit of research today in trying to determine some of this. Like, I'm trying to really, like, flesh out from a data standpoint as home teams, 
you know, which home teams seem to perform better. And I and I'm one of the things I was looking at as a metric was, you know, how does Oregon, Oregon State, and Utah, and Washington, and maybe even Washington State, how do they fare when they are the home team? And then when you factor the spread into it, like how do they fare on average? Do they do they play better than Vegas expects them to play at home, worse or whatnot? And I found some really interesting trends when I looked at that. And I don't know if we can assign this all to Austin Stadium or Research Stadium or Rice-Eccles Stadium, but Oregon, Oregon State, and Utah are 1-2-3 in conference in the Pac-12 when it comes to playing better than expected at home against the spread. Oregon has beat the spread by an average of 10.5 points at home. That They're beating the spread by 10 points, Stephen. Oregon State beating the spread by 8.8. Utah beating the spread by 5. Those are the three best teams in the conference, and the one at number four surprised me because it wasn't Washington, it wasn't Washington State, it was UCLA in the Rose Bowl. So, you know, and, and maybe some of this has to do with the opponents. Like, I haven't looked deep enough into it, but just... You know, who's playing better than expected at home? And it's Oregon, Oregon State, Utah. One, two, three. I found that interesting. Yeah, and it is because, you know, I think you're right. I think it's a little bit of who you play and stuff like that because UCLA, that home field advantage, obviously doesn't seem like it'd be worth a lot. But you look at their other those other schools you talked about, Oregon, Utah, Oregon State, and there is a big advantage when they're playing at home. And, and we've seen it. We, Oregon State is a completely different team at home than they are on the road, you know, defensively especially this season. You know, averaging over 400 yards given up on the road, 285, I believe, at home. Like, they're giving up over 100 yards more on the road this season. And we saw Oregon, you know, on the road at Texas Tech struggle a little bit against Washington. You know, they were the better team, but they ended up making a couple mistakes. They lose that game. So, I think you're right on with that. It's hard to justify how many points it actually is, but it seems like with these point spreads that we're seeing, John, I don't know that Vegas has necessarily caught up to how big of a home field advantages these schools have, especially in the Pac-12. Yeah, and I think uh, those are the things I look at, first of all. Like somebody asked me over the weekend, they said, hey, how do you pick your games? And I said, the first thing I do is I look at where these games are being played. That's the first thing I look at. And I will assign, like, you know, a plus or a minus to where the games are being uh, played. And so Oregon going to Utah is a minus. You know, uh, that I'm immediately assigning, a you know, a minus there. And so, adva- you know, huge advantage Utah. And, and Oregon State going to Tucson is a minus. It, it's not as big a minus as it, it would be if the Wildcats were coming to play in Corvallis. But it's still a disadvantage because when you look at this matchup, the other thing, the second thing I'm interested in, now I don't look at the spreads until I'm almost ready to make the pick, and then it jumps out at me when I see the spread. Like when I saw that Oregon was a six and a half to seven point favorite at Rice Eccles Stadium, I went whoa, like th- because by my estimate that should be a really close game, and so sometimes the spread is wrong, and I don't want that in my head going into, you know, me making the pick that week. Now, granted, I'm not 100% picking these games, so take it with a grain of salt, but I'm, you know, I'm picking against the spread at like 56%, and last week, I just knew, I felt so good about the Utah-USC game, so we'll ask Kyle Whittingham about that, ask him about the home field, all of this convoluted talk I'm giving you now, he will probably summarize in two sentences, you know, what is the home field worth at Rice-Eccles Stadium? Is it a touchdown? Is it a field goal? Is it 10 points? What's Kyle Whittingham going to say to that? I'll ask him all about that. 
Later in the show, Bruce Barnum will be joining us, the Portland State football coach. They're coming off a loss, home loss, their first home loss. Am I supposed to knock on wood? I don't know. Uh, But Barney will be joining us to talk about their game coming up this weekend, among other things. Uh, Later in the week, obviously, Herb Street on Friday. Jonathan Smith and Nick Aliotti tomorrow. Anthony Gold will be joining us. I've asked Dan Lanning to come on Thursday's show as well. So we'll be jam-packed going into the college football weekend with big guests every day. Those of you who come to the show all the time, you know we don't ever bring a guest on just to fill time. And it happened my very first week on the job, 17, 18, 20 years ago. I don't even know when the first show was. I'd have to call John Strong and ask him. That's what I do. I say, when was the show? And then he checks back the date of the show. He knows it. And, but, but back in the day, I had a producer who was longtime radio guy, nice guy, but didn't really understand what I wanted to do with the show. And the very first week, he started booking guests, and I said, well, why are we having this person on? We had, well, we need a guest. No, no, no. I don't, I don't book anybody just because we need a guest. We don't need a guest. I'm here. I'm the guest if we don't have somebody who is worth talking to or worth bringing on. And so when you get her Kirk Herbstreet or you get Nick Aliotti, who's an expert, has three decades' experience as a D coordinator in the Pac-12, or, or you get Dan Landing, or you get Kyle Whittingham, or you get Jonathan Smith or Jed Fish or whoever we get on, we're getting them on because they are the person that we want to talk to about what is going on. Like, th- let's get the person, not some peripheral person who could talk about you know xyz what i want to talk to the person and so uh, i remember that producer the first day i said no just cancel the guests i'd rather have a blank show sheet because i have stuff to say and i don't want to put somebody on who's just talking in circles filling time while uh you know i could be uh imparting you know my thoughts my opinions the things that i care about and think about and so uh, you know like today two guests kyle whittingham bruce barnum both of these guys i want to talk with and I reached out to Portland State just before the show as well, and I said, hey, new president, I want her on the show. How do we make that happen? Portland State's working on that as well. So that's not going to happen today, but that's coming down the pipeline. I want to talk to the president at Portland State about you know where they fit and whether or not the, uh, the administration of Portland State really does support athletics. I think they do. Hell of a video that they put out today. I don't know if you saw it. Steven, you see the video that I tweeted of the Portland State president? It's fantastic. I, I did. I saw that. Yeah, and it makes you think, like you know, maybe uh, maybe she is going to invest into football a little bit and into Bruce Barnum because you know we've talked about that numerous times how there just hasn't been the money invested into that program and Barney has said it nicely, you know, as nice as he can. But it seems like maybe the president, new president coming in, may actually be on board with it, which I think would be great for just the city and for that school. Stephen Piercy, the outgoing president, was an empty suit. He was. I wrote it. Somebody got mad at me. One of the faculty members at Portland State said, well, just because he doesn't support athletics doesn't mean he's he's an empty suit. No, he's an empty suit. A university president should understand the university, right? Not just the academic arm, not just the fundraising arm, not just the student life arm of the university that few people think about, but also There's an athletic department arm of the university that goes into making the entire thing a community and and gluing it all together. And not everybody cares about sports in the same way that not everybody cares about biology. Like, I get that. But I I don't for a second think that Portland State should be ignoring biology at the expense of uh, everything else. And they have in 
recent years just ignored sports and mismanaged sports and underfunded it and not really recognized what it could do for the campus. And Montana and Montana State are great examples of what a athletic department can do for a college campus in the Big Sky Conference. And Portland State has you know, you know, profoundly missed the leadership element there. And Stephen Piercy's out of the way now, and Portland State's got its new president uh, who has taken over. And the first thing I did when she was hired was I, well, I looked up. I was like Googling Ann Cudd. Let's find out who Ann Cudd is. And it turns out that uh, the new president at Portland State has a background in cross-country, ran track, ran cross-country, ran it in college, understands sports. And I was like, holy hell, did they just hire somebody who's not going to ignore the athletic department? Because it's not even about, like, let's let's see if Portland State can fund athletics. Like, the, the administration may just say, hey, our hands are tied. We don't have a lot of money to invest in sports and athletics. But my hope would be, that there are there's an angle there where they go, hey, we don't have the funds right now, but let's find a way. Let's work together with the athletic department to find a way. Let's work together with boosters and donors to find a way. Let's work with student fees to find a way. And that's what a lot of the universities are doing. Oregon State has student fees that are invested from students in athletics. The students at Oregon State pay a student fee. I know. I have a student who goes to Oregon State. I get the bill. I look at the bill. I go, hey, there's a fee on there for the athletic department. And I told my kid, make sure you go to the games. Make sure that you uh, take advantage of the fact that you can get tickets and go to a basketball game. You can go to a football game. You have, you have, uh, you have that resource available to you. There are some people who would go, oh, why should my kid pay a student athletics fee? Well, I'll tell you. When the athletic department performs well, see Colorado, enrollment is boosted. Gift giving is boosted. You have the ability for the athletic department to have this halo effect on everything, including biology in the library. There's this halo effect that happens, and it's happening at successful universities that have athletic departments that are well-funded, that are successful, and I don't care what level you're playing at. It, it can happen at Montana State. It can happen at Montana. It can happen at Oregon. It happens all over the place. It happens at Colorado, Washington, other places. And it can happen at Portland State, too, if the university president gets on board and goes, hey, that's part of our front porch there. Like, it's not the business of higher education to make sure that there's a football team and a basketball team and everybody's doing well. But, gosh, it sure helps with the other stuff if we're successful versus not being successful, and I think what you've had is you've had mismanagement for the better part of two decades at Portland State, and my hope is that the new president, Ann Cudd, on the scene, she appears to get it. She's in this video. If you haven't seen it, it's on my Twitter. Um, she basically is meeting a football player on the steps of the uh, Stott Center, and uh, then they're working out together in the weight room, and then she's, she's deadlifting. And then she's in a Portland State uniform running onto the field with a team. They must have filled them out at the last home game. It was pretty remarkable to see that, and it was damn funny. So check it out. But it was the first time I've ever seen, like, a university president at Portland State who apparently knows the way to the weight room, knows where the athletic department is, and knows where the football stadium is. That is a huge head start for Bruce Barnum's program.
All right, Kyle Winningham's coming up, University of Utah football coach. He uh, made the joke after beating Lincoln Riley's team that they've got Heisman winners over there, and uh, we've got our pig farmer, and uh, I'm going to ask him about that and other things. But uh, Kyle Whittingham will be joining us coming up. Uh, by the way, did you catch it, Stephen? Lincoln Riley not only did not make his players available after the loss to Utah, he skipped out on his coach's show on Monday night, his radio show, skipped out citing uh, that he was under the weather. Now, yeah, what do you make of that? I mean, what, what is going on down there? I, I feel like this is more than just a Lincoln Riley problem. It's a, it's an entire program problem at this point, right? Like it's a it's a culture issue at this point. And you know what? It's funny because everybody who said, you know, he he underachieved at Oklahoma for for everything that he did achieve and all, and it was impressive what he did there and Heisman Trophy winner, a lot of wins, all that stuff. But they always seemed to lose a game at the worst time or just couldn't quite follow through. That appears to uh, to be following him to USC. Can't beat Utah and probably going to struggle down the stretch with both Oregon and Washington as they play both of those teams. And I think they're really lucky they don't play Oregon State. But if you're the head coach at USC and you're making $10 million a year, first of all, after the game, do not be afraid to allow your players to talk. You don't trust them in the post-game news conference. How do you trust them on the field? Secondarily, you have to face the music on your coach's show on Monday night. I don't care if you're under the weather. You're healthy enough to go to practice. You're healthy enough to do that 15-minute interview that you're paid for, part of his contract, by the way. Lincoln Riley's skipping out on it. Like, maybe it turns out he's got some serious health issue, uh, and, you know, I'll have to walk this back. But right now, I think the issue might just be that Lincoln Riley's playing small. I mean, whatever you think of Dan Lanning and his fourth down decisions, he faced the music right after the game and the day after and the day after that. So, you know what, like, and I think you look at Oregon's culture, it's completely opposite of what USC's culture is right now. I had a conversation with Lanning after the Washington game because I had, you know, I'd been, I'd been critical of him, but I also, in my column, it was balanced, you know, and I, and I said to him after the Monday news conference, I said, I thought you handled the Monday news conference about as well as any coach has ever handled making a, making a mistake like that. And he said, you know, I understand the job. I understand that there's going to be times when you're going to have to criticize me. He says, you have been very fair with me. And, and you know what? I appreciate that. And Chip Kelly, I had much the same relationship with Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly came to me early in his tenure. I had criticized him. And he said, hey, I want to be able for you and me to go back and forth. And, you know, if uh, you write something that I disagree with, we can talk about it. And if I do something, you know, fair criticism, all that. It was a healthy relationship. Like, I took shots at Chip when I thought he was wrong. But it's a healthier relationship. It's a healthier place to be than being shut off and shut down and not showing up for the uh, Monday night uh, coaches show and hiding out after a, after an embarrassing loss. And that's what Lincoln Riley's doing right now. He's hiding out. Kyle Whittingham, not hiding. He'll uh, step into the spotlight next. Leave it here.
did last Saturday night as Utah did what Utah does to USC. The Utes beating USC 34-32 on a game-winning walk-off field goal. Here to talk about it, Kyle Whittingham, Utah coach. Hey, coach, thanks for joining us. How are you? John, how are you? I am well. Uh, that was a lot of fun to watch you guys. <laughs> I don't know if fun's the right word for me, but uh, <laughs> it was a, we enjoyed the outcome. Um, I'll, I'll, jump, I'll jump right in. Give me an idea. Like, Look, I'm, I'm an English literature major. That was like a three-act play, like watching you guys <laughs> go back and forth, the pick six, and then you drive back. I mean, what did that feel like for you? Yeah, probably more like four or five acts, but uh, yeah, you know, early on, first of all, uh, you know, we came out of the gate pretty good offensively. Two of our first three possessions, I believe, we scored, and of course, they did the same thing. So, fourteen all going into the half. Uh, took control in the third quarter. You know, we were up twenty-eight fourteen, and had we been able to, you know, put another score on the board, that would have been. Uh, pretty much the nail in the coffin but uh to their credit we couldn't do that and they came roaring back and and uh, that pick six was a huge momentum changer uh in the fourth quarter um i think we answered with a field goal after that and then uh of course the big play for us that was damaging was the punt return you know that mm-hmm. set up the the uh the go-ahead touchdown and and uh, if i remember correctly is that right that's the right sequence yeah. of events i believe and uh you know as fate would have it um they scored on the first play after the punt return, which worked in our favor uh, time-wise, you know, yeah. because we we still had like a minute and forty left. I was prepared to burn all the timeouts right then, and you know, in that drive, had they just run the ball a few times, so that would have left us with less time and and less, you know, far less timeouts if if we would have. Uh, play a little bit of defense but fortunately we didn't play any defense on that snap and they scored and and then uh, the rest is history i mean barnes takes us down the field those two scrambles were huge uh and uh cole becker the walk-off uh field goal and uh that was it i mean it was a great game just you know it seems like we've had so not seems like it we have had so many uh great games with uh, the trojans ever since we got in the conference and and it's been a competitive intense series and this is just another one like well i guess it's the final chapter in uh in that uh in that series with them i was looking back at your performance in the second half and you beat them twenty to eighteen the other night in the second half. In the championship game, you beat them thirty to seven, and in in the regular season last year, you beat them twenty two fourteen. You're winning in the second half. Is how much of that is adjustment? You figure out what they're going to do. You have a great staff. We do. I, I have to agree with that statement. I'm, uh, they make my life very easy. I think we've got uh, three of the best coordinators in the country. Uh, Andy Ludwig on offense, Morgan Scally on defense, and Sharif Shaw runs our special teams. And and uh, we are uh, you know, pretty strong in the second half. I, I think uh, a lot of that is credited the way we practice you know we practice very physically and we and we do a lot of conditioning and and uh you know just uh really work hard our, our guys have a really good work ethic uh monday through friday and and they're in uh, excellent physical condition and and the stamina and i think uh you know playing up here at altitude when you go down to lower altitude that really gives you you know the extra energy and you know with the, with the heavy air and and so uh yeah i think uh we've been a strong second half team and it certainly has has uh, helped us out in a lot of instances you made the uh the quip about uh, you know you have a pig farmer at quarterback in the post game <laughs> little known fact i raised pigs as a as a kid i know how hard that that's hard work man and but you you have all these kids you recruit that are they have such a variety of backgrounds how, 
how much fun is that for you to kind of go out and put together a team that really is kind of a melting pot of America? It's a blast, and we, we pride ourselves on being the most diverse football team in the country. We have almost exactly uh, one-third African-American, one-third Caucasian, and one-third Polynesian on our team, and nobody else in the country has that balanced of a blend of, of backgrounds, at least none that I know of. And then we have uh, 18-year-old freshmen and 25, 26-year-old uh, you know, returned missionary uh, seniors on our team, and so we've got we've got a broad spectrum uh, you know, with our roster in many different ways and and uh it works great we all get along and have a great culture here and and uh you know something that we we perceive as a strength of ours did you uh did you raise animals as a kid did you have pets i didn't i did not you know we had a dog now and then uh you know just off and on but uh no i wasn't uh, raising pigs or chickens or anything like that you guys had football uh, football crazy in that family um <laughs> look you're looking at oregon on film and i always i see bucky irving I see Bo Nix, I see Jordan James, I see their run game, their pass game, their balance. What do you see? Same thing, exactly the same thing, and and a ton of production. Uh, you know, they're getting well over 500 yards a game, and uh, you know, nearly 50 points a game. And I mean, they're just so productive and so so good at what they do. And it's all uh, Bo Nix driven. I mean, that guy is a tremendous leader. Uh, he does a great job with that offense, and and uh, just very impressed with that young man. When you, when you attack from a defensive standpoint, just in a general term, you know, when you have a great QB, you usually say, okay, let's, you know, take away their strength. What do you do with Oregon when, when they have that balance? Yeah, tough, tough, uh, tough job and, and uh, very difficult for defenses to uh, be able to figure that out. Nobody has yet, I guess. I mean, I mean they, uh, you know, they score, uh, what's the lowest scoring total? I think against Washington, 33 was probably their lowest total of the year. Otherwise, you know, they're scoring a bunch of points, and so nobody's really figured that out to this point. Um, you know, Morgan Scally is is uh, outstanding coordinator, outstanding strategist, and and uh, he's working around the clock to try to figure out a way to slow him down. But but uh, you know, it's it's hard to do. Easier said than done. Um, Rice Eccles Stadium. You mentioned the altitude. I you know I I always think about the fans there, and it's like a red. I, I tell people they say, "What's it like there?" And I said, "It's like being in a blender that's all red. It's just a circular <laughs> blender of red." Um, what is that stadium worth? Do you think as a home field advantage? Oh, it's it's invaluable, and you know, point wise, I couldn't give you you know four, five, six points. I don't know how to equate that, but as far as uh, in-game uh, emotion and momentum, uh, and it's not the biggest stadium. You know, we're about fifty-one-five, but uh, when we finished that off a few years ago and, and closed that uh, south end, it really. Uh, made the atmosphere even that much uh, you know stronger for us and and we got the must the mighty Utah student section uh, you know about 7,000 strong which I think is one of the best student sections in the country and so it's a it's a great home field advantage for us um, get a lot of false starts on the opposing offense because it gets so loud in there and and our players really feed off of the uh, the emotion in that stadium I was there years ago on the, on the Kalen Clay game where he had that oh yeah that, I, I mean it just broke my heart for the kid because I know you know, he's. It was such a you uplifting moment, and then it turns into a 
thing that you know he can, he can't escape. And what did you tell him after that? What, what were those conversations like? Well, first of all, it was a teaching moment. I mean, you, you know, you got to correct the error and and uh, you know tell him exactly you know what what you can't do and why you can't do it. And and he's a smart kid. He understood his, his error. And but he's such a great kid and was such a tremendous player for us and and uh, did so many good things that you know it's a shame that uh, you know a lot of people that's the the first thing they think of. But but uh, you know I think we were going to go up. Was it fourteen nothing? Yeah, it would have been fourteen zero and then seven seven. Yeah, it's, yeah, big. Yes, that was a, a turnaround. But there's, you know, there's what 150 plays in a game, and so that wasn't the the thing that that did us in. And and uh, tried to explain, you know, make sure he understood that that hey, it's, you know, that was early in the game, and we had plenty of opportunity to to uh, you know correct that and get back on track. And so so uh, it was. Uh, unfortunate that it happened, but a uh, great kid and, and did a lot of good things for our program. Did you really practice after that? I heard kids say that they pra- you practiced giving the ball to the official, or is that something you... Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we we re-practiced it. We, we always have practiced it. We, it, it became a, a stronger point of emphasis after that. So, yes, we did. The answer right. is yes. All right, Coach, uh, you, you look like you guys are having fun, I mean, dancing around the field like that. I know the highs are high and the lows are low, but... Um, I'm savoring this last Pac-12 season because it's like a good book. I don't want to put it down. Exactly, and it's a shame that uh, you know the, the conference is going away, and and uh, still kind of surreal to me, and and uh, really hasn't. Uh you know, hit home, but I'm not a sentimental guy. You know, I, I, I'm pretty good about moving on and, and, uh, and embracing change. So, so uh, Big 12 awaits us next year, and we'll see what happens there. Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Utah's going to be Utah. You know, I, 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 think, <laughs> I think that the Big 12's going to understand what a headache you've been in the Pac-12 for, for opponents. So, Well, let's hope so. Yeah, let's hope so. All right. Kyle Whittingham, I will see you at the stadium. I appreciate you giving us your time. Thanks, John. Always good to visit with you. All right, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There he goes, Kyle Whittingham, Utah football coach. Uh, I find that very interesting that, you know, uh, and here's the thing. Like, you see coaches will celebrate on the field. They'll celebrate with their teams. They'll go back to the locker room and celebrate. They do all that. And then, you know, uh, it's in an hour and a half, two hours later, they pivot into next week. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time on the weekend, like Saturday night and Sunday morning. Uh, you know, catching up on my text messages. And I was texting with Mario Cristobal, the Miami coach, last weekend uh, on early Sunday morning. I don't think he went to sleep after Miami Clemson. I think he stayed up all night, you know, A, on the uh, adrenaline rush of beating Clemson, and then B, um, on, hey, I got to get ready for next week. Kyle Whittingham beats USC. And by the way, it's not that USC has a – Utah problem. Like, I saw national media members say, oh, USC has a Utah problem. They've lost four straight times to Utah. Um, Utah's beating a lot of people four straight times in the Pac-12 conference. They are the two-time defending conference champion. And I keep saying, like, the road to Vegas goes through Salt Lake City until it doesn't. And USC found that out uh, last week. Oregon has got its work cut out for it. The Ducks, a favorite, heading to Rice-Eccles Stadium. Uh, My gut right now tells me that's going to be a very close game. I want you to leave it here. Coming up, our big splash. In the 4 o'clock hour, we got some punch it audio. Uh, Big guests all week long. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach, on tomorrow's show. Nick Aliotti, the former Oregon defensive coordinator, on tomorrow's show. 
efforting Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, for later in the week. You got the BFT statewide. Leave it here. Love that interview with Kyle Whittingham, Utah's coach. Five o'clock hour, Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, will be with us. He might have the coolest university president in the Big Sky Conference. We'll talk about that, among other things. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, I just want to recap because we had a, a an addition to the guest lineup that happened during the Whittingham interview. Tomorrow, it'll be Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, along with Nick Aliotti, the former Oregon defensive coordinator and Pac-12 network analyst. He'll be with us to talk about the games. I always love getting Aliotti's take about this part, about this time of the year, this part of the season. He's seen enough. He knows some stuff. And you're going to want to hear Nick Aliotti on tomorrow's show. Uh, on Thursday, Oregon coach Dan Lanning is now confirmed in the 4 o'clock hour. And on Friday, it'll be Kirk Herbstreet from ESPN and Amazon and whatever Kirk Herbstreet is doing these days. And so I find it interesting because I tweeted out, I tweet, you know, the Lanning thing was fluid. And I tweeted out right before the Whittingham interview, Whittingham's coming on and Jonathan Smith and... And uh, Eliotti and Herb Street later in the week, and I didn't include the landing part of it because it, you know, wasn't like solid. It wasn't confirmed. And as soon as I tweeted it, you know what happened? Uh, Oregon reached out immediately and said, "Hey, landing four o'clock hour uh, Thursday." I said, "Okay, let me let me edit that tweet." It's kind of like the club, you know. There might there might only be like fifty people inside the club, but if you can create a, a velvet rope situation and a line. Suddenly there's a demand to get into the club. I think that's what happened with that tweet, Stephen, and now it'll be Dan Lanning on Thursday. Add him to the lineup. You got to, you know, put a little pressure on people sometimes, John, and uh, you did a good job of doing that because, I mean, now that you had Lanning, I mean, the lineup was already great for the week, but now you had Lanning to it. It's just like, man, this this week of interviews is going to be great. Yeah, I mean, who else can we pressure into interviewing? Greg Sankey. I want Sankey on Friday. Let so me start see calling I... people out. What are we doing here? <laughs> Why is Greg Sankey not on the show on Friday? Um, all right, let's um, let's. There's something that Whittingham said late in the interview. I want to I want to seize on. You know, I I am turning the pages on this Pac-12's final football season slowly. I'm savoring it. I had mentioned I think weeks and weeks ago that it's like watching you know the end of Breaking Bad or the end of Sopranos. You know, when they say this is going to be the last season and it'll be the series finale that will ultimately happen in the last season, Game of Thrones, right? Remember, we were all watching it. We were all into it. Breaking Bad, Lost. I don't care what your show is. Seinfeld, if we reach back into the past, whatever that show was that you just absolutely loved and you didn't want to ever end, Pac-12 football season's doing that. And there's a joy in this season because it's so good. Like, the teams are good. The games have been great. It's been compelling theater. No greater uh, evidence of the fact that this conference has got real depth to it than watching Arizona State take Washington to the mattresses in, in, in Husky Stadium last Saturday night and watch that be a really good game down to the wire. It just shows you the gap between the team that's sitting in first place and the team that's sitting at the bo- in the basement. The gap is narrower than ever narrower than the 20 years that I've been here covering this conference and maybe even long before that watching this conference. There were always some easy outs in the Pac-12. There there aren't any easy outs right now. Stanford 
comes back from a 29 nothing halftime deficit and beats Colorado a couple weekends ago. You know, Arizona State pushes Washington to the extreme. You have, uh, you know, games coming up this weekend that people are looking past, like USC and Cal, and I'm going, okay, not so fast. Like, that's not an easy out. If you don't come to play, you find yourself in a dogfight, even if you are one of the better teams. So that that's happening. But I, I was, you know, I'm kind of lamenting how slowly I'm turning the pages because once the season started, I don't know what your experience has been, but it feels like it's moving too fast. I want the football season to slow down just a little bit. Let us savor it just a little more. And and the fact that, you know, we're looking at, like, the next month of games just being like, uh, you know, these games that are just going to be flying at us, Utah playing Washington, USC playing Oregon, Washington playing USC, Oregon State playing Washington. There's all these great games that are going to be flying at us on a regular basis. I just want to savor it just a little bit. But Whittingham says, you know, he's while he's lamenting the end of the Pac-12 season as we know it, or the Pac-12 conference as we know it, he's also got his eyes on the horizon, and he is looking forward to whatever awaits them in the Big 12. Now, I say what awaits them in the Big 12 is a whole bunch of success. Like, I don't think Utah's going to stop winning. And I, don't, and I, in fact, think Utah's going to be more dominant in the Big 12 than it was in the Pac-12 because there is no Oregon, there is no Washington, there is no USC, there is no UCLA in the Big 12. I think Colorado and Utah are going to be among the big winners in going to the Big 12. And I think Kenny Dillingham in Arizona State's going to be a winner, too. I think the Pac-12 schools that are going into the Big 12, those four-corner schools going in, I think those schools are going to dominate. Steven, am I crazy? Yes, I think you're a little crazy. Um, I, I think this has been a it's a great great season for the Pac-12, right? Like this is the, maybe the best season the Pac-12 has ever had. But I think there's a lot of things that have contributed to it. So I don't think that just because this Pac-12 season has been so good that these teams going to the Big 12 is just going to go and dominate the Big 12. Because the Big 12, I mean, yes, they are losing their two best teams in Texas and Oklahoma. But they still have solid programs that are very good. And I, so I just, you know, I could see maybe Utah going in and winning the conference in the first season. But that's probably about it. I, I And I but don't know. Don't the, you think Colorado's going to be better in the Big 12 than they would if, had they stayed in the Pac-12? I do. Like, because I just think I think the Big 12 is not as good as the Pac-12 was. But I also think it's just the Pac-12, all things aligned this season. And the Pac-12 has been awesome this season. I don't know how much that was really going to continue every single season going forward. So, yeah, I think Colorado. I think they fit more with the Big Twelve as well stylistically. But yeah, I don't. I don't expect them to go in and you know dominate. I think. I think if they were in there this season, they'd be about the same. I think Colorado in the Big Twelve conference is going to have way better trajectory. I guess maybe we're talking about two different things. But I'm not saying like this season's Colorado team. But I'm saying what Colorado could be and what Coach like how, Prime how will quick have how them. quickly can Colorado win a Big Twelve title? I think they could win. They could compete. I, th- I still think Utah is going to be in their way, but I think they can compete at the top of that conference in season three, in two years from now. I don't think if they had stayed in the Pac-12, I don't think Colorado could ever have competed with Oregon, Washington, USC, UCLA, and Utah in their way. They were looking at being like the third or fourth best team in good years, and Oregon State too. Like I just I think there's there was more traffic in front of Colorado have they stayed in the Pac-12 
versus going to the Big 12 and where I think they're going to, you know, I think they're going to clean up playing Kansas and Kansas State and Oklahoma State and Baylor, BYU, Central Florida, Cincinnati. I mean, that's those are easier outs than the Pac-12 teams that are going off to the Big Ten. And you don't have to deal with any of that if you're Utah. And you don't have to deal with any of that if you're Arizona or Arizona State. So I, I'm not going to be surprised if, oh, if we look back five, six years from now and we see Utah has multiple Big 12 championships, Colorado is played for the conference championship a, a time or two. Arizona and Arizona State are top half of the conference teams. Like I think they're just going to do better in the Big 12 than they did in the Pac-12 in recent years. I can subscribe to the Utah being at the top of the Big 12. Like I, I think I can I can buy into that because they were at the top of the Pac-12. I, I think if you put Utah basically in any conference, they're going to be competing. Maybe not year in, year out, but they're going to be one of the better teams. But I don't know, John, and just in the history of Arizona, Arizona State, like they've never had consistently great teams all the time. I think there's going to be ebbs and flows to those programs, even Colorado. So I, I don't know. I think you're a little uh, little bullish, a little we'll too bullish see. on the Pac-12, but we'll see. I'm bullish on, you know, these Pac-12 teams that are leaving. But I, I'm looking at the, you know, you remove Texas and Oklahoma. You know, are you telling me that Oklahoma State, Kansas State, Iowa State, I mean, I'm looking at, you know, Utah cleaning up on that group in, in, you know, BYU, West Virginia. Like, Utah's going to be just fine. Wasn't it just last season, though, BYU just dominated the entire Pac-12 South? Yeah, they dominated, <laughs> and it was well, – what were the teams they were beating? I can't even remember the teams they were beating. It was but all it was, the – it was the Pac-12 South. Yeah. It was Arizona, yeah. Arizona State. I, it, so that's what they're going to be playing next, or next season. You, I, I, you give me BYU against Utah, I'm picking Utah over, over a decade. Like, I'll take what Utah's done, and I think that they will thrive in that. But, yeah, I mean, there have been cases of Mount San Diego State had had its way with some of the Pac-12 South and teams. And that BYU-Utah rivalry is going to be but, awesome. But I think that's a, better approximate, that's a better comparison. Like, I think if you put San Diego State in the Big 12, I think San Diego State over a decade period would finish right in the middle of the Big 12. I think they're that good. You tell me. Tell me on Twitter, at John Canzano BFJ. Tweet at me. How do you think the four teams that leave the Pac-12 are going to fare in the Big 12 conference? Will it be a mixed bag? I think that conference outside of Texas and Oklahoma is not very good in football. It's great basketball. Like, Arizona might go to that conference, play 500 ball in basketball, and still make the NCAA tournament easily. They might also be pretty good in football top half of the conference team it doesn't have to play oregon washington usc ucla doesn't have to play oregon state even get into that conference feels like arizona state arizona from a football perspective are entering a peer conference by going to the big 12 utah i think will dominate that conference We'll see. Colorado, I think, has a better chance to matter. I think Coach Prime probably delighted not to have to play USC, Oregon, Washington. It's no fun. We're going to play some punch and audio here. Bruce Barnum will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. Big guests all week, 3 to 6 p.m. right here on this show. Uh, In punch and audio, Charles Barkley going off. Chris Paul saying he still gets nervous. And Deion Sanders talking sign-stealing. Plus, Pat McAfee wondering uh, if, uh, if uh, you know, athletes who are 
whining and complaining actually like basketball? Does Nikola Jokic actually, actually like basketball? Does James Harden like basketball? All of it part of Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with Deion Sanders. In the wake of the Michigan sign-stealing fiasco, sign gate, whatever it's going to be called, Deion Sanders was asked about sign-stealing in baseball, sign-stealing in football. Here's what he said. Punch it. Everyone's trying to get an edge. I mean, everyone's trying to get whatever edge they can. Um, you could have someone's whole game plan. They could mail it to you. You still got to stop it. You still got to stop it. So in football, it's not as pronounced as baseball. If I know a curveball is coming, I'm, I'm, I got you. You know, with, with football, I don't give a darn. If you know a sweep is coming, you still got to stop it. Physically, you, it's a physical game. You got to stop it. So that that's a little tough. I don't buy into a lot of that stuff that someone's stealing this, stealing that. I don't I don't buy into a lot of that stuff. You still got to play the game. Back in our glory days with San Francisco as well as the Cowboys, you know darn well Emmitt Smith is getting the ball. You know darn well Mike Irvin is running the comeback. You know darn well Jay Novacek is going to do what he's going to do, and you couldn't stop it. It is what it is. It is what it is. Sign stealing not new in any of these sports. Still, I think what we see unfolding at Michigan is a little different. You've got the individual who is at the center of this scandal buying tickets in 10 or 11 or 12 different other college football stadiums, including potential college football playoff opponents of Michigan. You have him then on the sideline at games helping coaches as the opponent opposing team is calling plays like the guy was everywhere and involved in everything and and i think you know any competitive advantage that is within the rules is fine look across the field try to steal the signs in real time have at it but if you are really videotaping and employing advanced scouts to go decipher and steal signs at games and then report back I kind of got to wonder how off off the ball your eye is. I uh, I hear a lot of people calling for the Big Ten Conference to uh, eliminate Michigan and the college football playoff to eliminate Michigan, and you know I want to give them due process. I want to I want I want the NCAA to get to the bottom of this sooner rather than later. Don't do the normal NCAA thing, but I I hear what Coach Prime is saying in football. Teams that do their homework know from the formation what the other team's going to do. That's part of playing the game. That's part of scouting the game. I just think it's all going to end with coaches being in the ears of their quarterbacks, and we're going to see signs no longer a thing on the sideline. You watch. What should the punishment be for Michigan if indeed it is found that they were doing all this stuff and Harbaugh knew about it? The bigger issue I have is Harbaugh lying about it. I don't like that he said we had no knowledge of it, no knowledge of it. Now we're seeing video of the guy on the sideline helping the defensive coordinator while he's looking across the field. You know, and so the bigger thing is I don't I don't know if Harbaugh can be trusted. I don't know if you can take his word. I, I think you've got to punish him if you're the NCAA. The problem is the NCAA doesn't have oversight on the college football playoff. 
That would have to come down from the Big Ten Conference. So to me, the issue is, what do the other members of the Big Ten Conference think about this? You know, they, they have, they, they're the ones that have been placed at a disadvantage. If they think that Michigan should be ruled out of contention for the Big Ten, and, and oh, by the way, if your house is clean, you know, your hands are clean too? Like, can everybody say that they haven't done this? Like, I would love, you know, I think you're right, Stephen. You said yesterday others have, are doing this too, and now you're going to see a whole bunch of CYA going on. Be interested to see who comes out strong against this and who says, hey, just a slap on the wrist. Because I think you're probably right that there are others doing it. But what should the penalty be? I I, I don't know. I, I would, I would want to ask Ohio State that. I'd want to ask Penn State that. I want to ask them, like, how do you feel? Do you feel strongly about this? If you do, you want to remove Michigan's ability to compete for a playoff spot? Have at it, but just know that that could cost your conference millions of dollars. Like, that just seems egregious to me to say they can't compete for the Big Ten championship or a college football playoff berth. It just seems egregious for what it is. Chris Paul says he still gets nervous for season openers. NBA opening its season. Here's Chris Paul. Punch it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Steph asked me that today during practice while we was warming up, and I told him, you know, the minute you don't get that, it's time to be done. (laughs) You know, so we talked about that for a little while. So definitely excited um, and ready to go. I'm interested to see how Chris Paul fits on a Golden State roster that already was good enough. He'll be in that second rotation. Steven, how does he fit in your mind? I think it's a good fit for him. Uh, you know, because Steph Curry is so good without the ball. Klay Thompson's so good without the ball. He's not gonna have to he's not gonna be asked to do a lot. He's not gonna be asked a lot to carry, uh, put a lot on his shoulders and carry the team. So I think it's a good role for him. You know, he's getting older of an age. He does he can't play a lot of minutes. So I actually think it's a great situation for Chris Paul as long as he can buy in and you know. It seems like he's always been a guy that wants to win a championship. He hasn't got one, so this is going to be his best chance. I think the fit's going to be actually really good with Chris Paul and the Warriors. NBA season opening tonight. Nuggets-Lakers on opening night. Shams Sharania and Pat McAfee talking about Nikola Jokic here in this, in this conversation. McAfee saying the whining and the body language doesn't look like he's having fun. Shams says, well, you can't be that good at basketball and not – Love the game. Punch it. He gives a press conference, whatever, when he walks in, and he's just moping in there. It's as if he does hate the sport of basketball, and that is how he – is that the case? Is this just his personality? Is this every single year? And it, what is he just back at 100% night one, even though he's paid no attention to basketball offseason all the time? <laughs> Listen, you can't be that great. You can't be as te- like as, as gifted – and, and, like his rhythm is always on point. His vision, the way he plays, the way he shoots, like his shooting as well. His shooting has gotten better year after year. See these trick shots he makes. Listen, maybe he's just got this like freak alien ability. But uh, you know, when I talk to people around Denver, I think there's a little bit of a sly laugh, a, a sly smile. Like this is a guy in, in Nikola Jokic. I think he's fun. I think he does care about other things outside of basketball. But this is a guy that. That, that, that loves the game, clearly. And I do think winning is very important to him. They're hitting on something that, that is a little bit of a peeve of mine. We watch these athletes play the game, and we watch Jokic play the game, and we say, wow, on the court, from tip-off to the buzzer at the end of the game, 
he does look like he's having fun. And he's tremendously creative and a terrific player. I don't need him to be in the news conference and be a comedian. I don't need him to come in. You know, I never needed Michael Jordan to entertain me anywhere else but on the court. And so I think it's patently unfair to ask LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, Damian Lillard, away from the basketball court to entertain us. Please entertain us. Please be exciting. Please look like you loved to play the game. I don't mind if they walk into the news conference and they're a little flat. I don't mind that. Just be real. Nicole Jokic, he actually is pretty funny, though, at his press conferences. He doesn't try yes. to be, but he's really funny. I think it's more the fact that, and this is not in a terrible way, but I just don't think he likes to be in America. Like, he likes to be in his home country of Serbia, and he likes to be around his family and his friends back home. Because you see those videos of him back at home. He's always partying, always dancing, always having a fun time. And then after he won the NBA Finals, he's like, "I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, do the parade. I want to go home. Like, I just think he he misses home and he wants to be there all the time, which I don't have a problem with. So, it's not that he doesn't have fun playing basketball. He obviously loves basketball and he's really good and he cares about it, or else he wouldn't be over here playing uh, and winning NBA championships and MVPs." Charles Barkley speaking with uh, Ben Golliver about the NBA's participation policy. Remember, star players, load management, NBA's changed the rules. Charles Barkley, don't get him started. Here's Ben Golliver. Punch it. There's this new player participation policy where they're basically saying stars have to be in games like tonight's game or these nationally tough fights games. You know my Is this going to work? Don't get me started, man. You're just going to make my head hurt on the first <laughs> night. Um, this is a, a joke and a disgrace that we're paying guys $50, $60 million a year to play basketball a few days a week. You know, we're not like steel workers, doctors, nurses, who, you know, nurses work their ass off a lot, teachers work a lot, firemen, policemen work a lot for not a lot of money to ask. It's really, I'm offended that we've even having this conversation, to be honest with you. Charles Barkley speaking as... As uh, every man connecting with doctors and first responders and steel workers all at the same time. And he's right. It's a different kind of fatigue. It's a different kind of tired. And you're making 50 or $60 million. Suck it up. Play the game. Quit whining and crying about, you know, load management. Uh, I like that Barkley is speaking for a lot of people. But, John, the policy not working already, uh... Bradley Beal unlikely to play tonight against the Warriors in the second game of the doubleheader, and Devin Booker 50-50 to play. Uh, already, opening night, two of the big stars may not play for the Phoenix Suns. Is it legit injury, or is it a load management? Well, or, you know? they, Beal's always kind of injured. They said they're playing it cautiously with him, um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know, John. I can't tell. I, I just, It's just weird. I'm with Barkley. Just try to play a little bit more, but it, it is a shame of how these players take all these nights off. It, it is, but I also look at it and I go, it bothers me more in the middle of the season and the end of the season. that Because I if a guy's missing on opening night or game two, I want to say that's a legit injury, right? I like, mean, they played during the preseason, though. Both guys did. Are they really going to miss opening night? <laughs> I don't and, know. And be like, it, hey, I need a night off. It's fun to no. joke about. That's all I like. You know, the grind, I, the grind is too much. The NBA is back, John. Guys are missing games. Get on board.
Opening night. Stars are going. I need a night off. Ah, preseason was tough. We'll do that. Well, you got Mattress Mac losing his wager as the Astros eliminated by the Texas Rangers. Dusty Baker had to talk about it. Did they get beat or did they lose in the American League Championship Series? Punch it. Heck, when you get beat 11 to 3, I mean, there's a there's a whole bunch of stuff you can point to, you know, in that ball game. And so, uh, you just got beat. You know, sometimes, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. Um, sometimes you lose and sometimes you get, you get beat. You know, there's a difference. You know, we got, you know, we got beat. Dusty saying they got beat. The Rangers move on to the World Series. Three days away from the start of the World Series Game 1, it's unknown who the National League representative will be because there's a Game 7 tonight between the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Philadelphia Phillies. That Game 7 was forced because of the Diamondbacks' power surge. Punch it. And Pham sends one deep into left field, and that one's going to fly. Tommy Pham, welcome back to the lineup. Running around those bases with some anger. One to nothing Diamondbacks and a silencer here in this second inning. That ball's hit well in the left field. That one is way back there. And Guriel goes deep. Back-to-back home runs for the Diamondbacks. The Snakes are alive here in this second inning. There it was in the second. Diamondbacks take game six, five to one. Forcing tonight's Game 7. By the way, the uh, American League Championship Series and the National League Championship Series both go to Game 7s. Fourth time in history that's happened. And uh, and, uh, big big matchup tonight as the Diamondbacks and Phillies will try to determine who gets the Rangers in the World Series. I'm going to root for the National League entry. It doesn't matter who gets there. Like, I don't have a dog in the fight, but Rangers... Can you really root from for a team, American League team from Texas? Come on. At least it's not Houston. Like that's that's a positive. I, I'm with I'm with you. Uh Diamond I'll go Diamondbacks because you know the Hops affiliation. There's a lot of yes. former Hillsboro Hops on that Arizona Diamondbacks team. A lot of them, a lot of their better players. So I'll go with the, I'll go with the Diamondbacks. Hey, Aiden Childs, the Oregon State freshman, got to speak for the first time today to media. Freshman quarterback talking about uh how Oregon State has coached him and and why he's at Oregon State. Punch it. After being around the program for so long and how long I've been here right now, it's uh, really just proven to me that I have came here for the culture and the team and everything. But Coach Smith was building something great. I realized what it was. This is the only team that really let me compete as a freshman and let me be who I am. So nobody wanted to change me or anything, so they just let me come here and play. So that's what I wanted to do. Aiden Childs, a vote of confidence for Jonathan Smith and his coaching staff. It's why I've said, you've heard me railing about this for about a week now, maybe 10 days. I've been talking about why Oregon State needs to give Jonathan Smith an extension. I will not be surprised if those talks are ongoing right now. It just makes too much sense. Oregon State's headed to Arizona on Saturday where Jed Fish and the Wildcats are waiting. Here's Fish. Punch it. Schematically, they're extremely different. Um, They're a... uh... They're much more under center team. They're not a spread team. Uh, they are willing to play with a fullback, which we haven't seen. Um, 
really since UTEP. UTEP uh, is similar in that regard in terms of their offensive scheme. Uh, they have some really good skill players on the perimeter, which is what we've been going against every week. Um, they have a very good quarterback, which we've been going against every week. But what they do and how they use them and what they do in their running game is very different and unique. Call it Oregon State unique. Imagine if you called Coach Prime unique. Chip on his shoulder, he'd find a way to turn that into a competitive advantage. Really tricky game for Oregon State. On the road, but coming in the wake of a bye. I think it's going to be a really close game in Tucson and a very important game as both Arizona and Oregon State on my radar as potential teams that could be top half of the conference, right? Top six teams. Now, I think Oregon State has a chance to get to the conference title game, but they don't get there if they lose this game to Arizona. They have to win at Arizona. They have to win at Colorado. Then they will face Washington. They will face Oregon. You see the end of the season coming for Oregon State, but this is a big one for Oregon State. This is a they got to get this one. And sneaky Arizona, they've played some really good teams, right? At Mississippi State earlier this year, they played Washington, USC on the road, Washington State on the road. So they've been challenged, and they've really come out on the other side looking pretty good. So, yeah, you're right. Very sneaky game, I think, for Oregon State to go on the road against Arizona. Should be a good one. Late night game, weird game. It's, you know, keep an eye on it. Finally... Let's talk about Matt Rule. In-game sign-stealing. To answer your question, how bad is what's going on at Michigan? I think it's terrible that Michigan is lying about it. They sound like they're lying about it. They sound like they were up to no good. They look like they were up to no good. I don't blame the NCAA for looking at it. It looks bad. But I need college coaches to tell me how bad it is. Here's Matt Rule talking about in-game sign-stealing. Punch it. Yeah, sign-stealing happens every game. Um, there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with teams over there looking over trying to steal our signs. There's nothing wrong with us trying to look at their signs. Um, um, it's, I mean, it's why you should have mics in the helmets, right? Like all these coaches that vote against it every year is because they don't want to teach their quarterback. You know, in the NFL, each quarterback goes out there with three play calls <laughs> because if I see if I see the free safety's foot like that, it might be one high. I'm going to check to this play. And if I, but you get to college and you're watching a game on a Tuesday night and you know they they got the signal and they're just calling a play. So. That's uh, what makes college football, to me, that's why they score maybe more points, but it's also why the kids are less prepared. So that's why they should, there should be, 100% should be, we could get rid of all the stupid signs on the sidelines and we could get pictures of, you know, rock stars and all that stuff and we could just play football the way it was meant to be. You go to a high school game, there's technology on the sideline. You go to an NFL game, there's technology on the sideline. You go to the college, there's nothing. Like, if you don't think, you know, I mean, so that it should be that. Um, but that's sign stealing. That's not... I'm not, don't, don't, I would not carry that over to going and filming someone else's practices or something like that or filming someone else's games. That's completely something different. And I'm not saying that that happened, but I think what's wrong part, partly in our society right now sometimes is we say someone, someone does something against the rules, and sports need rules, right? Sports need rules to keep competitive balance, and when someone does something against the rules, we say, well, should that really even be a rule? And it is the rule. That's, that's the rule. That's the rule. you got to follow it. Matt Rule giving us the rule. Sam's in Vancouver. He's upset with Deion Sanders. I need to hear this. Sam, why are you upset with Coach Prime? I mean, it's not that I'm upset. It's just the more and more that he talks, it just seems the more and more he's unqualified to coach at this level. Um, when he brought up race, you know, at the very beginning, I was kind of like, really? You know, and then... 
he goes ahead, and I saw that that uh, the Friday night game, it's starting at 7.30 or 8, and he's like, what's with this late start and everything? It's like he'd never even heard of Pac-12 after dark, which has been going on for years. And I think that's where the problem is with some of these coaches that come out west and everything when they play in a different run. These East Coast transplants, they don't pay attention to the West Coast. So that's why he came over, and he's like, oh, well, what's up with these late starts? That's been a Pac-12 thing. Um, yeah, hold thought, on, hold on, hold on on that now. Now the Buffs get ready yeah. for Stanford coming in a Friday night game, short week for the Buffaloes this week. You got an eight o'clock game. Gary and I are going to hit the air at six p.m. We'll be out in Duane Field again. Mr. Affleck will be out in Mathfield. Field. Makes on. these eight o'clock games. That's the dumbest thing I know, ever. I know, ever. I know. It's those fellows the over the television. Stupidest thing ever invented in life. Who wants to stay up to eight o'clock for a darn game? You wait till we do. What it. about the West Coast? Yes. I mean the East Coast. Any, do they even care about ratings or anybody watching it? I know. Uh, you you wait. That got you all fired up, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it really did. And then to add on top of that right there is that I saw the video of when he was in his uh, locker room or or the meeting room talking about all the penalties. There was no fire in there whatsoever to get them pissed off about the mistakes that were made. Just, hey, don't go, basically, don't go out partying during our bye week, you know. And it's just, it's, it's. It's very frustrating. I think that he really has no idea. He's going back to the Big 12, and he thinks he's just going to have a great time. He has no discipline over his players right now. He's not addressing that or anything like that. And like what you were saying about his kid at halftime, selling stuff on, you know, at halftime, it's just there's no, no nothing. It was a name that went over there. And, man, the more and more he talks, the more and more I'm glad he did not come to Oregon, man. Because I think that would have been another Willie Taggart. Well, I appreciate the call. I, I, I think that he's been good for the conference. And I think Coach Prime's been good for college football. I agree with Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly this week speaking effusively about the good that he's brought. Now, I think it's worth pointing out there are different kinds of head coaches in football. Like, you know, there is a head coach that's more of a CEO type. Mike Bellotti at Oregon was more of a CEO type as a head coach. I don't know that he was rolling his sleeves up and getting into drills like some other guys like Dan Lanning or Mario Cristobal are, but there's there's a place in college football to do it more than one way. And with the onset of NIL and the transfer portal becoming more and more important, there's absolutely a place in college football for a name guy who can absolutely recruit and generate and attract talent to be the figurehead and the CEO of the program in the same way that Mike Bellotti was the CEO of the program back in the day. And, you know, I know that people want to be, well, he, he's not doing the actual coaching. No, he's hired Sean Lewis to coach his offense. He's hired Charles Kelly from Florida State to be his D coordinator. Those are smart moves. That's, that's what a good coach would do. The problem I think that Coach Prime is having at Colorado is the same issue that Oregon got criticized for maybe a decade ago. Remember, Oregon had the fancy locker rooms and the fancy uniforms, and all of a sudden they had a bunch of four- and five-star guys, but they weren't real tough. They, you know, and we looked at them and we said, well, why, 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 this, why is this Oregon team getting beat by teams that have less talent? And I kept thinking, like, maybe it's like the players that Oregon had back in the day that helped get them to a Rose Bowl that were grinders, that were tough, those guys weren't coming to the program all of a sudden. And, and, and Oregon, the, you know, the type of player that was attracted to the Brazilian hardwood floors and the etched glass and the locker room lockers that had, you know, the ventilation system and the Xboxes, maybe that guy's not as tough as the kid who was picking Utah or the kid who was picking Oregon State 
or or you know or and maybe that was counterintuitive. Maybe there's an adjustment that needs to happen. So I think Colorado's dealing a little bit with the transient nature of the portal being their benefit, but also their detriment because the kind of kids who get into the portal and jump from school to school to school to school aren't thinking about culture. They're not thinking about being part of something that's bigger than themselves. Like, you know, you look at the transfer portal in the offseason, the two programs in the Pac-12 who lost the fewest players in the portal were Utah and Oregon State. Five and six players. It wasn't 50. Which two programs have just great inherent culture? Utah and Oregon State. I think there's a correlation there. And so I think there's a little bit of a fracture in the culture at Colorado. And maybe he writes the ship and figures that out as a better balance of, hey, maybe next year it's only like 20 guys in the portal, and then two years from now it's 18 in the portal, and you start to find that balance. But I'm not going to criticize him and say, hey, there's no place, he shouldn't be coaching, he's a bad coach. I don't know yet. I don't know what the outcome's going to be. But I can tell you this. I think by going to the Big 12 Conference, they don't have to deal with Oregon, they don't have to deal with Washington, they don't have to deal with USC, and they don't have to deal with UCLA. And UCLA is going to kick their teeth in this, this week. So that, there's that as well. Leave it here. You get the BFT. Well, Anna, welcome to the studio. There's a line forming outside the studio. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, Kyle Whittingham was in the in the line, and then Jonathan Smith and uh, and Nick Aliotti were in line, and then some other people said I need to get in line too, and then and then Kirk Herbstreit got in line. You know, he's going to be on Friday's show. Smith and Aliotti on uh, tomorrow's show. And then all of a sudden I tweeted that out, and uh, now Dan Lanning has jumped into the line for Thursday. Oregon confirming Dan Lanning on the show. It's just like the club. Everybody, you know, his line starts to form, then everyone goes, hey, what's going on in there? I need to get inside. What's all the music about? That place looks cool. Am I on the list? You know? I had to tip the bouncer, a Benjamin, to get in here. <laughs> oh, wow. A full Benjamin to get in. They you're they, they normally let the ladies in. They do. First. They yeah. just open the rope. Nothing more powerful in that situation than being a woman with a couple of attractive friends who are dressed well. Get right into the club. Yeah. The rest of us standing in line. Yeah. Biding our time. The sausage fest out the yeah. door. Yeah. You and I've been been in Vegas. We've gone uh, to a couple of these clubs, just mostly sightseeing. And uh, kind of to see what it's about, and and uh, it's well, a- right, right, because for us it is sightseeing yeah. because we're so old that we're like, hey, let's go see what the animals are like in the wild kingdom. Yeah, well, remember like <laughs> when when I covered the Oregon and Washington game a couple weekends ago, we went, we took the kids the day after the game in Seattle. We took them to the Seattle Zoo. Yeah, and I, as I'm walking around the zoo, I said, you know, someday they're gonna have humans in the zoo, and it'll be. <laughs> Artificial intelligence walking around, going this. This is what a uh, you know construction worker used to look like, <laughs> yeah. and be some guy wearing a construction vest and a hat, looking this, sad behind the thing. This is a cubicle. This yeah. is how a lot of America. Are you going to be doing the show from behind, from behind yeah. the cage there? Be a radio show host. This is what a radio show host. Some guy. It'll be you know because we go we What's go by like we go by the uh, gorillas. Yeah. And the orangutans. Yeah. There's no sadder scene. I know. Because you look them in the eyes at the zoo and you go, you know, if not for a few chromosomes, 
That's me on the other I side know. of the glass. I know. You Every know? time we go to the zoo, I walk out. Do I not? I walk out to you saying, this is the last time we can go to a zoo <laughs> because I can't do it anymore. I can't. Because I just, the you know, you're watching, like, the primates, like you're saying, especially, we're too close to them, and they're way too sophisticated yeah. and evolved to be, you know, caged and looking at us. Well, even our seven-year-old, she was staring through the glass at a baby gorilla. Yeah. And it was looking back at her, <laughs> and she said, it looks like a person. Uh-huh. And I said, yeah, we're not that far removed, like... <laughs> For uh, from from being over there, but uh, the same thing happens when we're out at the club, because <laughs> oh, right. uh, club. it's essentially the zoo, <laughs> in you know in the nightlife genre, and there's like the guy who's working, he's like in charge, yeah, outside the club, yeah. like especially in Vegas. There's the guy who's got a clipboard, yep. he's wandering around, he's got a two-way radio, he's checking his phone. He's arbitrarily waving people into the club. I'm not sure how it works. There's like four different lines. Yeah. We were directed when we came up. He was like, oh, okay, you're the radio guy from Portland. Like, okay, you get in this line over here. And then I'm I'm confused because there's like eight really attractive, like 20-something-year-olds behind us uh-huh. in line. And I'm like, is this good for me or bad for me that I'm in this line <laughs> with these people? Like, you know, it feels like I'm in a good line, yeah. but I don't know if I am, but... Then we get inside the club, and it's like the whole VIP thing is going on, the bottle service, and, you know, we just kind of watch it. Well, in situations like that, you and I like to play a little game called Who's Picking Up the Check? Right. Because everyone knows in a club situation like that, it's like in in Vegas especially, um, you know, those booths, you cram, like, as many people as you can into the booth, and there's always, like, one or two people at the end like better the suckers that are picking up the check because they think somebody who's there taking the free drinks is going to go home with them, but they are sadly mistaken. There's a false demand that's created in that situation, though, <laughs> yes. with those booths and with um, with the club it, itself. Yeah. And that has spilled over to sports, though. How so? Because it, the sports teams are selling that kind of experience in their premium seating. Mm-hmm. They're selling the equivalent of the VIP bottle service, meaning, hey, you can get um, living room seating. You can get access to a private server who's yeah. going to come to you. Right. Don't necessarily – it used to be the luxury suites, but now it's changed. It's changed into this whole premium seating racket. Mm-hmm. And then there's a false demand that's created because – you can't find these tickets on StubHub. Mm-hmm. These are given to donors. These are given to high-level season ticket holders. And so there's a demand that it's created. And that, and it's the whole idea that, like, there's a rope there, and you're just curious what it's like to be on that side of the rope. Right. It's just human nature. Right. And so when I look at the premium seating areas and stadiums, often on the way to the press box, these are people who are getting off the elevator. They're going to their premium seats or whatever. Yeah. And I'm always like curious, like, what if I stepped off here? Like, how different would my ex- game experience be, you know, in the uh, Lexus Club or whatever it is at the stadium that I happen to be in? You know, there's been I, only a very scant number of occasions where you and or I have been invited to go into somebody's premium seating area like that. It was like friend of a friend of a friend that we knew. And I've got to say... 
I like a normal stadium experience. Does that make me simple? Why? Because it's more exciting. Because it's it's like when you're in those premium seats or you're in the, the box or you're whatever. You're saying the, the premies don't know how to root. They're just, it's a very sanitized environment. And it feels kind of corporate-ish. Um, and they're not watching the game. And maybe they're watching the game, but I I like like I think it, you lose so much of the stadium game experience by removing yourself that way. Like I like to be in the crowd with the people cheering and going crazy and high fiving strangers. Like I don't I don't know. Maybe I'm just not an elitist or something. But I think the experience is way different and better. I think you're probably poking around just the level of emotional investment that some have versus. They have the actual, you know, means to sit in the premium seating. Yeah. Just because you're sitting in the 100 level or you're sitting in a VIP area, it's the same as the club. Just because you're in the VIP area doesn't mean you know how to dance. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like you might be in the VIP area and you are not at all made for the club, but, you know, you're going to pay $800 for a bottle of champagne yeah. because that's what it costs to be in that VIP area. Remember that time in the club? There was a group of people. They were all wearing white. It was like a miniature version of Kanye's white party or something. I was like, what is wrong with those people? They look like they are in a cult. There's nothing more valuable in those club settings because it's dark. Yeah. There's nothing more valuable than a small flashlight. You know what I mean? If you give me like and and confidence, yeah, and confidence. just walk through that crowd. It could, a small flashlight is like a lightsaber in a club like that because everyone just moves. They like, oh, get out of the way, you know. Oh my god! So and just like a stern look on your face and a small flashlight. It used to be like you could walk through and go, hi, I have hot coffee. Look out, and people would move. Yeah. Nope, all you need is a flashlight. <laughs> get right through you that crowd. A stern expression. Oh, just say there's a there's a uh, secret to all things, and I think. Sports stadium seating, we're watching stadiums uh, sort of shrink in size mm -hmm. because there were a lot of tickets like in the upper deck levels of a lot of stadiums that go unsold, Yeah, especially in the last decade. You know, we've seen teams have a harder time selling those seats. So now the, uh, the uh, emphasis is on premium seating, mm -hmm. club seating, VIP seating, living room suites, mini boxes, uh, pavilions. Yeah. That, you know, they'd rather put a beer pavilion in than try to sell 100 more seats up in the upper, upper, upper deck of the stadium. So there's that as well. Um, Stephen, do you agree with Anna's assessment that people in the uh, premium seating areas don't root as well? Yeah, I agree with it. Um, although I would love to have more experiences in the premier seating areas. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I think it'd be you know it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, I just you know I don't have that type of access, but no, I agree. Uh, you know the 300 section at Motor Center, that's where you get the true fans. You know, mm -hmm. I've been up there and uh, I've taken my kid up there in the 300 level, and it's like it is a different experience. You got to be like, hey, these guys are gonna cuss, they're gonna be going crazy the whole time. Uh, and then I've been in the 100 section with them, and then he's like, yo, this is really cool, but like the 300 section, fans are going nuts. So it's just a different experience everywhere you go. There should be sections within the sections. Like, it shouldn't just jump from 100 to 200 to 300. There should be, like, there's a 100, there's a 125, there's a 175. Like, you know, and... Based off so your fandom? Based on what kind of fan you are. Like, you got to take a quiz before you go yeah. to the game. Yeah, if the diehard fans should, should be placed courtside. Yes. It shouldn't have to do with what the season tickets cost. I would love to see one game <laughs> where they just said, all right, we're going to take the 18,000 fans, 
We're going to rank them 1 to 18,000. I bet you a lot of those courtside fans who are sipping their wine and, uh, you know, eating, uh, eating whatever they're eating, daintily eating sideline food, <laughs> finger foods, uh, I bet you a lot of them would be up in the 300 level. At the end of that. At the Moda Center, the chant of Let's Go Blazers always starts in, like, Section 312, you know? like that's Always at the very top, too. It's never yes. the start of 312. It's the top of it. it really? No, it's the, the guy, top? Because it's the guy up there. Backs who, against the wall. He feels like he owns the place because he's looking down on everybody. Yes. He's like, look down on my people. I'm the Roman emperor. And he starts the Let's Go Blazer, and then you... It begins. Like, you've gone up to the 300 level, and you've written columns about people who sit up there because you, you're trying to capture the fan experience. It's just from different. Someone and I think it there. becomes really easy for media members in particular because the area where the press box is or the area where press row is in the NBA arenas, it's, it's around the premium seating. Yeah. And so it becomes really easy to look at that experience and think that everyone's having that experience. And so I like to get out and get up to the 300 level or walk around to different parts of the stadium to, to experience it through, you know, different eyes. And I find that to be a, uh, a, a valuable thing. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Yesterday, this show was on remote broadcast, meaning we were broadcasting from uh, not the studio. We were at Milwaukee Lumber. We were in Old Town, Milwaukee. And on the way there, I stopped for gas. And like a lot of people in Oregon, I now had a choice. I could either go to the uh, the self-serve pump or the full-serve pump, except the gas station that I pulled into had no such designation. And the one nearest our house, Anna, says has a sign out. says, you want full-service, go here. You want self-service, go there. I'm a self-service guy. That's me. <laughs> I don't I don't like to put people out. I don't need somebody to open the gas can and pump the gas for me you know i want them to have a job like if, if, if i'm taking their job away i don't want to do that but i don't need them to do their job okay okay i'm okay with them sitting on a stool and watching me pump the gas <laughs> okay so that's what happened yesterday we pull into this gas station guy comes over i say ah, i got this do you have you know am i allowed to do this and he says yeah you can you go ahead go right ahead and then he goes back into the little hut yeah. You know, I have that little hut. Yeah. At the gas station. What happens in that hut? I don't even know. <laughs> it doesn't look like a, it's it's often not much bigger than a coffin. <laughs> and they appear to have like a, uh, an amazing display of different kinds of cigarettes in there. Yes. And, you know, tobacco products. Uh-huh. And then it's well lit. Yeah. You can see in it. It's like a phone booth where the guy's trapped with tobacco products. Right. Okay. And that's where the gas station guy supposedly, I'm going to use air quotes here, rests. In between pumping gas, right? Uh-huh. So he goes back into the hut. This other guy, who must have been the number two employee, okay. is outside the hut on a folding chair. Uh-huh. Okay? Yeah. He's got a hoodie on. He doesn't have hut privileges. He's got a hoodie on. Okay. And while, you know, I took, I started gassing up the car. You were inside the car sitting patiently waiting. Yeah. I walked over to the guy on the, on the folding chair, and he looked up at me, and he had a shiner on his on his uh, left eye. Okay. He had been punched in the left eye. Yeah. And so I, uh, the whole conversation I had with him, we don't bring up the shiner. <laughs> but I can't stop looking at it. He is like freshly punched in the eye. It's very swollen. Well, that's okay? why he's sitting outside the hut. He, they fought yeah. for it. Maybe they fought for it. So he's, he's sitting on this chair. And I said to him, hey, I got a question for you. And he looks up at me and I'm like, oh, wow. And so then I said, listen, uh, 
of what percentage of people pull in here and pump their own gas? Oh. And he says, we were just talking about this. Uh-huh. And he said, we studied it. Like, they kept track. What percentage of people do you think pull into this Chevron gas station and pump their own gas? 10%. Steven, what do you think? Uh, I'll go 25%. He says 5% of people yep. pump their own gas. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked by that because I thought it would be like 50-50. Because, you know, I like to have the hose in my hand. That's a... <laughs> you know, I like to I like to be the one doing the... I like to have the hose in your gas. hand. Uh, that's why I live here. I, I, I rather enjoy the fact that I don't have to do that, especially on a day like today. Are you sure you're not like more comfortable in the luxury suite than you are in the 200? I'm with Anna. Level? Maybe it is a native Oregonian thing, but I love when people pump my own gas. <laughs> <laughs> it's like getting your shoes shined. And I love, it? I love too. not having sales tax. So don't take that away too, <laughs> please. But you realize, Okay. What? This conversation with this guy on the thing wasn't over. Yeah. So he says only 5% of people are pumping the gas. Mm -hmm. Made all this hullabaloo. All these people wanted to pump their gas. Yeah. Got the law changed. And then 95% of the people said, nah, he's going to pump it anyway. Exactly. Okay. So he says, you know what, though? He said about 75% of the people before the law was passed would try to get out of the car and attempt to pump the gas or attempt to do something they weren't supposed to do. He said, so before the law was passed, he says, I had to, I had to constantly tell people, you can't pump your gas. And he says, now the law's changed and nobody wants us to, to, to pump their own gas. That is a riot. Isn't that funny? I believe him. I almost wanted to punch him in his other eye and just even out the two shiners. Yeah. Just to, you yeah. know, to help him out. I- I had no idea you were having such an involved conversation outside of the car. This is what I do. I walk around the world. This radio show, this, this show would be happening regardless if there was a microphone in front of me or not. I know. You know. For as much as you talk to yourself in the course yeah. of a day. Okay, so get this one. Here's another one that happened over the weekend, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. Saturday morning, oh, dark 30. Okay. We're out at a soccer field. Yeah. I would later... End up at a football field. I didn't end up at Autzen Stadium for that Oregon State, uh, or excuse me, Oregon Washington State game. But we encounter a woman who's got on a vest that is has a bright colored vest, and she's holding a clipboard, and she's standing mm-hmm. on a trail, yeah, with no one around her. Mm-hmm. Anna very official. Anna just walks by her, says nothing to her, and I'm like, why? I got. I need to I, know what she's doing. Why do I? Yeah, why did you have to? I engage? did. I stopped her. I said, what are you doing here? And she says, oh, this is a a fun run. Yeah. They were doing. And I said, "Who's running?" And, she, and there's nobody running. And so, but but it just blew me away that you were comfortable seeing this woman yeah. standing in the middle of nowhere, wearing a vest, holding a clipboard, and you just kind of walk by her like, "Yeah, it, she belongs." Like she's a fire look, hydrant or something. It didn't look that vital. Whatever she was doing, it didn't seem like it applied to whatever we were doing. I need to know what she's doing. She wasn't stopping our forward what progression. What if she's? You know, she says there's a sniper in the trees somewhere here. I'm looking for him. I don't know. Leave it here. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's show as much as I've enjoyed doing today's show. Anna's here for the 5 at 5. Bruce Barnum is in the on-deck circle. Portland State football coach. Portland State getting a lot of mileage out of that video featuring their new president, Ann Cudd, who is uh, 
apparently on board with sports. I've re- I I tweeted the video out. The NFL's Twitter account took a screen grab of the video and tweeted it to its 34 million followers. Portland State's getting mileage out of this thing. It's well done. It's well done. Are you just playing playing it on your phone? What are you doing over there? Yeah. All of a sudden, I can hear it in my ear. <laughs> no, sorry. I wanted to see it again. I saw it earlier today, and I was reviewing it, but I had it, the volume up on my phone. It's it's genuinely funny. It's yeah. a it's a really good effort. Yeah. What makes it good in your mind? Uh, it's the contrast. It's um her good naturedness and her willingness to be part of a video like that. You see it starting out and. She doesn't look like somebody who's going to go put on a football uniform. So uh, it's the contrast between her and the rest of the football players who obviously, like, outsize her. Juxtaposition. It's It's the juxtaposition, as you might say. It's always the juxtaposition that makes things funny. (laughs) You know? it's uh, She looks like a little old lady. And uh, and instead, she's putting on a football. She's deadlifting and putting on a football uniform. That's what makes it funny. Uh, you're going to give us the five at five. Bruce Barnum will be along. Uh, Friday show, Kirk Herbstreet. Thursday show, Dan Lanning. Wednesday show, Jonathan Smith and Nick Aliotti. What else do you want from me? Okay? Five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. Anna's number one story is... Uh, it's interesting. The <laughs> continuation of Tom Brady talking about Tom Brady... Um, he's saying in a recent episode of Let's Go, a podcast, uh, that he has doubt that any current quarterback will match what he did for as long as he did it in the NFL. I agree with it. He says people have to do it for a long time. I did it for a long time. When you look at my career, I was able to do it every year for basically every single game. Every game wasn't perfect, but every game was pretty good. If someone does make it as long as I made it with a degree of success, then I would give them a lot of respect. It would be an unbelievable accomplishment for them to do that. I think uh, Brady benefited from a couple things. One, he played in an era where the way that quarterbacks were protected changed. Early in his career, he took some shots. Late in his career, you couldn't breathe on him. So I think his longevity in part was due to the fact that he stayed healthy in the way that the game was officiated changed, in the way they protected quarterbacks changed. That helped him. I also think that today's era of the NFL is much more parody-driven than maybe the meat part of his career. The middle of his career, dynasties are still a thing. The Patriots are still a thing. The Cowboys have their run. The Packers have their run. The Niners have a run. We, you know, We saw teams have dynasty runs, and maybe you could argue that the Chiefs are on a bit of one now because they've been so good in the AFC. But I think right behind that, there's just a ton of parity. I think it's hard to go out and win 12 or 13 games in an NFL season now. Like last night, the 49ers are a great example of that. You know, they go to Minnesota. They're without Debo Samuel. They don't win. They don't win two weeks ago in Cleveland. So they go from like 5-2 and two, or 5-0 and oh to 5-2 and two really quickly. And I think the NFL is geared towards that, so I don't. I agree with Brady. I don't think we're going to see quarterbacks have the success, the sustained success that he had, because I think you know Tom Brady in today's game, if he was in the prime of his career, I don't know that they would have done what they did in his run. Number two, 
New Orleans Saints wide receiver Chris Olave was arrested Monday night in Louisiana on uh, suspicion of recklessly driving. He was doing 70, allegedly, in a 35. Uh, What's interesting to me is that as the officer um, took him into custody because of that high rate of speed compared to what the posted speed was, he told the officer, I play for the Saints, man. This he, is according he, to the body. So he did one of those, don't you know who I am? Shouldn't he have had this, uh, like this Gus Johnson call as his ringtone? Alave still moving. Alave with the burst to sweep. Chris Alave, a 61-yard touchdown. Alave telling, did he not have his trading card? Yeah, that's the, that's the Kintel Woods, right? He had, his, he had his card on him. You know what I like? Michael James saw this story and he tweeted, if they don't already know who you are, this doesn't end well. He really did. Yeah, oh. it doesn't. If they don't already know, hey, that's Chris Olave, not going to go well. But you going, hey, don't you know who I am? Well, the best part is the officer, when he says, basically, don't you know who I am? The officer's response is, and? <laughs> <laughs> so, slow down, guy. Slow down. Number three. Um, Damian Lillard is now explaining why the Bucks are a better fit than the Heat for him to win a championship. Uh, he's telling Fox Sports that it's the best basketball situation for him. The depth is what makes him think that it's his best chance to win. They've got to be healthy. They've got to be together. Um, and... Meantime, he says he's still been in contact with Jimmy Butler of the Heat, that they'll continue to be friends and their relationship will be the same. There was another report today from about Pat Riley saying that Tyler Hero really was never in the conversation to be part of a trade that would acquire Damian Lillard. A lot of, lot of smoke out there. Hard to determine what those deals were. I guess we have to wait for Joe Cronin to write his book someday and say what was really available, what wasn't available. Seems like a lot of backtracking there, doesn't it? Dame Dame didn't want to go to Milwaukee. Now he does because it's the best spot. Tyler Harrell wasn't available. He was really the guy that they talked about was available. It seems like everyone's just trying to cover their base here. Really interesting. Uh, Reinvent the history. You know, this is what I wanted all along. This is a better fit for me. Okay, let's see it. Number four. 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 Uh, Vikings defensive back Cameron Bynum uh, took his camera time on Monday night on the NFL Network to talk about some things that were really important to him. So he was talking about gratitude for being able to represent his mother's home country of the Philippines, talked about his foundation. But he also ended the interview by asking for help to get his wife to the United States. She's been dealing with visa issues. He says that she's still in the Philippines and her visa is getting denied. So he basically says on national television, if anybody's out there that can help with the visa process, I would greatly appreciate it. And then he also tweeted it out afterward. Fascinating. He's, but yeah. he's using the platform. Look, it's not that different than, much different than Chris Olave saying, don't you know I play for the Saints? You know, here's a guy who badly wants his wife in this country, and he's essentially making an appeal. Can someone out there who can do something, 
who happens to like the Minnesota Vikings, do something about this for me. And it might he might be successful. He's ringing the bell. Good for him. I, you know what I thought of when I saw that story? What? I thought how how his wife would be warmed by that. Yeah. In this moment, what he wanted was for her to be by his side. He said they're going on two football seasons without her being able to attend. It's hard. Number five. Number five. And by the way, I have a 5B. Okay. Okay, you have 5A, yeah. I have 5B. You have an addendum? I have an addendum. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this one involves pickleball, which you know is one of my favorite things to talk about, much to a lot of people's chagrin. Uh, Lil Wayne is the latest celebrity to dive headfirst into Major League Pickleball. He's joined the Texas Ranchers Ownership Group on Tuesday, along with Micah Parsons, Zach Bryan, Miles Garrett, and C.J. Stroud. I'm telling you, this Major League Pickleball thing, you need to get in on it. Everybody else is. Tom Brady, LeBron, Drew Brees, Michael Phelps, Naomi, Asaka, all these people who have invested in Major League Pickleball. It's coming, folks. This is, uh, this is a trend. It's also just an investment. And I'm sure these guys are getting sweetheart deals to put their name, their celebrity, and their money into the pickleball world. I'm still skeptical that the rest of us are going to want to watch pickleball on television for hours upon hours. Like, you know, I'll be the first to say I'm wrong if I'm sitting up at 2 a.m. watching a great pickleball match that's going on in Minneapolis. But, uh, you know, to each their own. Lil Wayne's uh, statement on this, pickleball is the moment. <laughs> I've enjoyed watching. Couldn't pass up the opportunity to join this I team don't know, of man. owners. I've been to the park lots. I'll walk by, I'll glance over, but I'm not going to sit and watch. You know, I see it on TikTok and Instagram. I don't, I flip by the pickleball games. I don't want to see that. Like, go play. It's a recreational thing. I no, I no more want to see somebody play pickleball than I want to watch someone swim laps at the pool. You know what I mean? It's 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 good exercise for you. Have at it. But I'm not popping popcorn and watching you, Are counting you, your laps. How about cricket in the Olympics, in the upcoming Olympics? Know. All right, I have an addendum. 5B. Okay. Everybody knows the story now of Michigan staffer Connor Stallions, who bought tickets to uh, 11 Big tw- Big Ten football games last uh, in 2022. Get this. John Wilner reporting that Connor Stallions, Michigan's staffer, also bought tickets to the 2022 Oregon-Washington game in Eugene. Remember, the Ducks were the number six team in the country at the time. Stallions was scouting prospective playoff opponents on behalf of Michigan. I wondered that when I saw that line in the story. I wondered if there was an Oregon connection because Oregon, you know, was bantered about as a possible playoff team. Apparently, Connor Stallions had tickets in Eugene and watched the Oregon-Washington game there last year. Well, he was thorough. Visiting sideline across from the Oregon bench he had tickets that's your five and five b at five pretty interesting so everyone still signs but his thing is just that he was too obvious about it no no you can't oh man this is my life people (laughs) you can you can go to the game okay 
you can look across the sideline if you're Dan Lanning yeah. at your opponent, and you can try to decipher their signs. Yeah. What you can't do is you can't buy a ticket and videotape someone's game and then steal their signs later by watching what happened on the field and de- you know decipher what the signage is doing. I'm sure they were filming the person giving the signs yeah. and filming the play and I'm just charting trying to, it. I'm trying to understand the context of this. Is like, At what level is everyone doing some degree of this? Everyone's doing some degree of it within the rules. Okay. Now, there's probably more than just Michigan breaking the rules. Yeah. We had the Patriots with Spygate. We had... Uh, the Houston Astros banging bats on the trash cans. We've got um, now Michigan knee deep in this thing. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just probably true that Michigan was far more evolved in what they were doing. Like there was an example just a few weeks ago. You remember a- Andrew Nemec, who uh, reports for Scorebook Live yeah. and covers high school sports, had this story of the coach's wife of a mm-hmm. high school team. Yeah. Going to the other team's practice and filming it yeah. with her phone. Mother of the quarterback. Yeah, mother of the quarterback filming with the phone. Like the story went viral. It's a great story because it had all the uh all the drama and intrigue of like high school cheerleading and cat fighting and you know, that's it was that kind of story. Yeah. But you can't do that, okay? That's poor form. Okay? That's not within the rules and it's poor form to be doing that. There is a natural exchange of game tapes that happens. There's film that's widely available. You can watch the plays. You can strategize against the plays. But you're not supposed to be stealing the other team's signs with some complex videotaping, logging it. It just shows, allegedly, the levels to which Michigan and Jim Harbaugh will go to try to find an advantage and find an edge. And maybe I'm wrong, but that's where I was confused because I was reading the rules about it, and it seemed like the rule... Uh, indicated that what was against the rules was the recording of signs and the deciphering and you know interpretation, but that it it the article I read at least made it seem like this sort of thing just happens. Okay, all right. Between in, in teams, or, in order to help explain this, I'm going to go back to a clip from Matt Rule, who is going to explain the rule. Okay. Okay, Matt Rule talking about what is inside the game and outside the game and ultimately talking about why technology is needed. Yeah, sign stealing happens every game. Um, there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with teams over there looking over trying to steal our signs. There's nothing wrong with us trying to look at their signs. Um, um, it's, I mean, it's why you should have mics in the helmets, right? Like all these coaches that vote against it every year is because they don't want to teach their quarterback. You know, in the NFL – quarterback goes out there with three play calls <laughs> because if I see if I see the free safety's foot like that it might be one high I'm going to check to this play and if I, but you get to college and you're watching a game on a Tuesday night and you know they, they got the signal and they're just calling a play so that's uh, what makes college football to me that's why they score a lot, maybe more points but it's also why the kids are less prepared so that's why they should there should be 100% should be we could get rid of all the stupid signs on the sidelines and we could get pictures of you know rock stars and all that stuff and we could just play football the way it was meant to be. You go to a high school game, there's technology on the sideline. You go to an NFL game, there's technology on the sideline. You go to the college, there's nothing. Like, if you don't think, you know, I mean, so that it should be that. Um, but that's sign stealing. That's not, I'm not, don't, don't, I would not carry that over to going and filming someone else's practices or something like that or filming someone else's games. That's completely something different. And I'm not saying that that happened. 
But I think what's wrong part, partly in our society right now sometimes is we say someone, someone does something against the rules, and sports need rules, right? Sports need rules to keep competitive balance. And when someone does something against the rules, we say, well, should that really even be a rule? And it is the rule. That's, that's the rule. Matt Rule talking about the rules. Pretty good, huh? Yep, I get it. Did that help? It helped, yes. This is my life. Um, I'm. Hey, I'm asking I, no, for a certain segment of the population, and I understand I that. Think. And I understand that, but <laughs> it's like okay. I, I I made this. I think this is a great parallel. In baseball, the hitter is within his right to peek down as the uh, catcher is giving the sign, yeah, yeah, and try to see if he can steal the sign. Yeah. Okay. I've seen hitters do it, uh-huh. and if the catcher catches you, you're going to get one in your ear. Yeah. Okay? So that's how they try to police that, at least back in the day before pitchers and catchers were talking in each other's ears. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, also okay is if there's a runner on second base who can see in and see the sign, Yeah. and he sees, he's figured out it's going to be a fastball, he can signal to the batter fastball by, you know, touching his shoulder or mm-hmm. touching his hat, mm-hmm. and, you know, they come up with a sign beforehand that's within the rules too because hey that's fair game Mm -hmm. but what's not within the rules is for you to have a camera in the stands in center field trained on the catcher and for you to have somebody in the clubhouse relaying the sign to the dugout and they will bang on the trash can if it's a fastball Mm -hmm. and not if it's a breaking ball you're using technology you're cheating the game you're cheating the other team both teams don't have the ability to do that. So it, what Michigan is accused of doing here is akin to that. Like, the, they were going out against NCAA rules. Yeah. And allegedly... They were, like, leaving their own campus leaving, and going, going to, to the other team's games. Other team's games. They show up as scout. Yeah. And, they're at the Oregon-Washington game. Yeah. Because they think Michigan might play Oregon in the playoffs, and they're focused on stealing Oregon signs. Okay, can I ask another question? Like, in baseball, I understand how it would directly give you competitive advantage as a batter if you knew what was coming, like a fastball or yeah, a curveball. Yeah, but ball. some hitters will tell you they don't want to know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, that's, like, direct yeah. knowledge. But sure. in football, isn't the benefit from sign stealing a little more nebulous because there's just more, way more, like, variables involved? There is to a point, but if you could tell me... You know, I'll ask the coaches we have on this week. We have Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith, Bruce Barnum coming up in a couple minutes. How much of an advantage would it be for you to know it was a run play versus a pass play pre-snap? Mm-hmm. Would it, you know, could would it change how you substitute? Could it give an advantage? You know, blitz, not blitz. You know, could you? You know, I I think if you knew it was a run play, or if you knew it was, if you actually knew the play, you still have to stop it. Like it's not like. If Portland State stole Ohio State's signs, Portland State's going to beat Ohio State. Like, you know, Oregon beat them 81-7. to Like, Oregon could have yelled across the line of scrimmage, this is what we're running, and I don't think Portland State could have stopped them. But when you get in a game like a national championship game or a Big Ten championship, and you're Michigan, and you've got a little edge on Ohio State, that's wrong. That's, that's, what, that's what Matt Rule's talking about. Mm-hmm. You have an advantage that's not available to your opponent and, oh, by the way, is explicitly outlawed in the NCAA rulebook. 
So I do think the more I talk through this, that you know, at first I was like, okay, is it a big deal? Is it a small deal? I think the 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 actual principle of the matter is a bigger deal than maybe the benefit they even got. Mm-hmm. That okay, if you're willing to do that and just flaunt the rule book, if you did that, you should be punished. You know, in the same way that Major League Baseball should have punished hitters that were using PEDs. How long before this comes back on Jim Harbaugh himself? How long can he sit here and distance himself from it and pretend like he had no knowledge and no part of it? <laughs> I, I wondered today if that if that ship sailed because the video footage of the guy who's yeah. accused of being in the stands. Yeah. He's on the sideline at the Ohio State game, and he's standing by the defensive coordinator, and he's looking. He's not looking at the field. Uh-huh. He's looking across the field at the other team's signals, and then he's giving the coach next to him a signal, and then the whole team on the sidelines uh-huh. doing the signal. Yeah, like everybody knew. How? how everybody is it, knew. That's what I'm saying. Like, how is it that it went this for this long without anybody figuring it out? Well, I'm th- I'm sure somebody had an idea, and you know it, it took a while for them to get it. Cam is in Eugene. Cam, go ahead. You're on the show. Welcome. Hey, Cam from Eugene is in the club. Thanks, John. Thanks, Anna. Uh, just wanted to point out, Oregon lost a close Rose Bowl to Ohio State about 13 or 12 years ago, and there were whispers after that that Ohio State had been scouting Oregon practices and trying to record, trying to get an edge in unethical ways. And I think it was that next year they put the barrier up around the outdoor practice facility. So it's not yeah. the first time it's happened in Oregon. It's been going on a while. Yeah, and I think that this has been a thing uh, with various coaching staffs. So I'll ask Bruce Barnum about it. I'll ask Jonathan Smith about it. I'll ask Dan Lanning about it. Barnum is next. Stay tuned. Big guests all week long on the show. We had Kyle Whittingham, Utah coach, earlier. Jonathan Smith tomorrow. Dan Lanning Thursday. Kirk Herbstreet will be on Friday's show. Nick Aliotti will uh, be on tomorrow's show, the former Oregon defensive coordinator. A lot to talk about. Bruce Barnum, Portland State coach, joins us every Tuesday right here at this time slot. Uh, Coach, thanks for making time. i got to talk sign stealing with you. Everybody wants to talk about it. Give us your take on what's happening in college football when it comes to sign stealing. What's legit, what's not legit? All right, first off, thanks for having us, John, um, or me. Uh, you know, you read you read all those names, and then you read mine. I'm like, all right, you know, all right. right. Aliotti, I like Aliotti. Is he guy? Is he every week or no? No, he's not. But he, uh, it's it's just we're overdue to have him on because he spits the truth. You know, he's he uh, does. I yeah. I know his brother. His brother was a recruiting guy down at, at high school in California. Nick Aliotti's a dude. Anyway, sign stealing. What do you want to know? Give us an idea of. In your mind, what is legitimate, what is not legitimate? When, what's fair game when it comes to stealing signs? During a game, ready to go. I mean, if, if you can get them, great. The problem is um, during a game, you know, that the defense, they can wait till last second, you know. Uh, I've been in games where they have that waiting game. They make sure the offense is doing what they do. They don't just throw it out there right away. So if you want it and if you want to get it, I mean, this is a whole strategy within the strategy. Uh, if you want to get it, uh, you go fast, you know. Mm-hmm. Or in two minutes in May Day at the uh, end of the half or end of the game when you're rolling, you know, you got to get run out of time, blah, blah, blah. That's when you can steal them because if you have a young D coordinator, he's going to panic and he'll just start throwing coverages out, you know. 
And if you know a coverage, you know, front and blitz and all that, I mean, if you know man or zone, uh, I mean, it it helps. Are you kidding me? It narrows your playbook. It narrows your play calls, and uh, you can go. So it's a whole thing. You remember what they did? Um, I remember Oregon did it once, and I don't know what the hell they were doing. I meant to ask him when they held up all those ghost things that year. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's a thing. It's part of the game Give on game an- day. All right, is it a bigger help for you to steal a sign on the offensive side of the ball or defensive side of the ball? Offense. So Simpler. You, you want to know Man what the zone. defense is doing? Man zone, just coverage. I don't care what they're doing, just coverage. If I can, because you know, because if you want to be, you know, rudimentary checkers, uh, zone run it, you know, man throw it. Um, uh, but you obviously you know. What kind of zone? What kind of blitz do they have? If they're a fire zone team, you know, or, which means they blitz, um, but they play zone behind it. Uh, you know, Dallas came out with that and swamped some people in the NFL, and everybody ran it um, uh, because you're showing blitz and you know you're 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 throwing blitz checkdowns to the back, et cetera, and he's getting smacked in the backfield. I mean, uh, Oregon State uh, fell into that a long time ago. I remember. I won't. Uh, uh, anyway, but back to your question: If you have them on offense, I think it's better. If you, you know, on on the other side of the ball, you know, what are you doing? You know, or are they doing? Okay, they're running the ball, or this is a run. Uh, you're looking for a gadget, maybe. You're looking for the deep ball, you know. But uh, I think it's more effective and, and more useful on offense. Give me an idea of where what is fair game as far as you know if your guys if you've got an assistant coach that looks across the sideline and he picks something up that's that's fair game right it now what if Montana State sent someone to your practice or sent someone to your your game this last weekend and they filmed you on the sideline like you know that's where you know Michigan is accused of is how how wrong is that in your mind <laughs> Well, uh, we just had a game. Um, here's one for you. You want real life? I haven't even yeah. talked about. I, I, I talked about my staff about this. <laughs> but what do you do about it? And, you know, sitting in my seat, uh, the head coach of the team I just played, father, is the head coach in my league who we haven't played yet. He was at mm-hmm. the game, sitting behind my bench. You know, what am I going to do? <laughs> what are they going to do? How about that? He sat back there the entire game watching my whole operation. And he sat behind your bench watching the game. Yep, 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 yep. Wow. How about that? There's a whatever you said about Michigan. There's one for you. I just had it happen last last Saturday. We talk, but I didn't know he was going to be there. Um, And I'm thinking – your kid's not playing. He's coaching. Now, if he was playing, I might say, all right, you know, Hawk, sure, come watch your kid play and yada, yada. But really, <laughs> you want to come? <laughs> uh, Bruce Barnum is with us, Portland State football coach. Uh, all right, give me give me an idea. You know, let's just say you, you, you somehow figured out Oregon signs in the right. game earlier this year. 
probably doesn't change the game, does it? I mean, there's just a point in which they could yell the play out and probably <laughs> Not that run. game. Yeah. <laughs> that game? Are you kidding me? No. I, I did, you know, I had called Joe Lorg or somebody and all that stuff. Hey, we had your signs, just so you know. You know, so you can hide them, you know, or do something different. But, you know, once they hit 79 goose or whatever the hell the score was, no. I, I was just watching the clock and trying to get out of Dodge. Let me ask you this, too, because I have seen and I have noticed things with teams that I cover. I will notice that uh, when the huddle breaks, a player who thinks he might be getting the ball sometimes does something different when he breaks the huddle. Have you ever picked up a tendency like that in watching film? Oh, a ton of them. That's one reason you watch. That, that's, that's late watch. You know, first is alignments, you know. I'm talking like Sunday or if you can sneak a peek before. Uh, then you move into, you know, down a distance field position. And then you move into tendencies. Say, we picked up some good ones. Say, uh... A few moons ago, uh, when they ran this certain blitz, um, I played a team, their defensive end consistently, he lined up outside the tackle, we call it a five technique, um, every every snap. And for this blitz, he lined up inside the tackle, we call it a, well, some guys call it a four eye, whatever. But he lined up in a different shade, and they ran that, it was America's fire zone. You know, so we checked. Our quarterback, O-line, checked every time um, pre-snap. And if they were in that, we would check to – we had two plays. We had a run. We'd run horn at it. Um, or we would, would just run 48 double bench, 588 double bench, um, and hit the tight end wide open for about 14 yards every time they ran that blitz. So, yes, you can pick up tendencies, you know. Uh, and there's a ton of them. Um, uh, that you can, but yeah, and, and, and you know, the biggest thing I've noticed there, John, is it used to, you used to get a tape, a VHS tape, remember those? Yeah. You, uh, you used to get those, and they would send it, and it was like a continuous copy, um, so you could see more, mm. instead yeah. of just getting a, a cut up play. Of here's play two, you know, and it's cut, you know, a couple seconds before, a couple seconds after. There's a picture of the score. I'm looking at a picture of a scoreboard right now. You have to have that. So everything's cut up. Right. Um, and, but uh, TV helps with that also. You can find some TV copies um, that show the sideline more, you know. Um, that's a re one reason uh, I DVR some of the teams we play. And I just zip through the sideline shots to, to see if you can learn anything or signals. That's a big signal thing. All right. Um, but, yeah, you check tendencies on film. Eastern Washington at Portland State uh, coming up Saturday, 1 o'clock. Tickets at GoVikes.com. Tell us what you see on film with Eastern. Uh, good football team. Uh, they play hard. They... Um, their quarterback's playing really well. He's leading the league in something. Um, they have a punter uh, that uh, my special teams guy who was at USC last year um, thinks is one of the best in the country. I mean, he's he's a dude. They are scoring versus everybody. Uh, their record's the same as ours. Uh, 
but I th they've lost every game by one score. I mean, they're playing good football yeah. right now. So uh, it's going to be a classic Big Sky battle. You come out flat, you're going to get beat. All right. Uh, i got a couple minutes here, but give me an idea. Your president, uh, Ann Cud, in the video, uh, running out in uniform. Nice to see that support. How about that? Ann Cud's a stud. I mean, she's talking stadium. She's talking... She's talking athletics, uh, period. Um, that hasn't been done around here in a few moons um, uh, since Pokey Allen, probably. Shoot, but yeah, uh, it's good to see that. It's good to see that interest. It's good to see that added, you know, uh, to a, a Portland State vibe or a Portland State um, media going out. You know, we serve the city, but. Let's serve it with athletics, and that'll help enrollment. That'll help everything they're bitching about right now. Yep, I, I think that synergy is great. All right, Coach, I appreciate you joining us. For people who want to see Portland State play, Eastern Washington on Saturday, 1 o'clock, Hillsborough Stadium, tickets at govikes.com. We'll, we'll talk to you again next week. I appreciate you giving us your time. All right, thanks, John. I'll talk to you. There he is, Bruce Barnum, on sign stealing and other stuff. I find that interesting. I have noticed tendencies. Like, I have noticed in the past, like, Oregon had a offensive lineman, had a tackle in the past, I'm not going to name his name, who, when it was a pass play, seemed um, a little less eager to get to the line of scrimmage and get, and this was not the Chip Kelly era, this is Mike Bellotti era, um, get to the line of scrimmage and get in his stance. And so I could, with relative confidence call run or pass from the press box based on how that offensive lineman got up to the line of scrimmage and got down very eager to get up and get his finger down and lean forward look like he's ready to run block versus pass block it was obvious to me but i think it's become less evident in the way that people are running plays and sometimes an offensive lineman who's sitting back in his stance might be pulling on a run play instead of uh instead of blocking in a pass protection so it's become less reliable but I'm sure coaches have picked things up from looking around and watching teams and watching film. It's uh, going to be a story to track. Again, John Wilner reporting that uh, the Connor Stallions, the assistant at Michigan, had tickets to the Oregon-Washington game in 2022 at Autzen Stadium, and he sat across from the Oregon bench. It's getting, uh, getting close to home, isn't it? Leave it here. Love having the coaches on the show today. Kyle Whittingham, Utah football coach, in the 3 o'clock hour was fantastic. If you missed any of that interview, he talked about the game-winning field goal and the game atmosphere in beating USC over the weekend. And obviously Utah hosting Oregon on Saturday, Rice-Eccles Stadium. I thought it was interesting that Kyle Whittingham, when I asked him what Rice-Eccles Stadium was worth, you know, he talked about three points six points i i think it's i actually think it's more than that i think there are about four stadiums in the conference that are worth more than a touchdown and i'll say that rice Eccles stadium in utah is one of them Autzen stadium in, at oregon is one of them i think husky stadium in seattle seattle is another i think research stadium in corvallis oregon state is another and i think pullman uh martin stadium where washington state plays uh those are all I think advantages that are around a touchdown instead of a field goal. And we can debate and argue which is the greatest home field advantage, but I think those are big advantages to the teams that play there. Now, unfortunately, both Oregon State and Oregon are on the road this weekend, 
Morgan happens to be going to a place uh, that is a very difficult place to play, and it's not very forgiving. And I will be there. If you want to read my coverage, you can do it at johnconzano.com. I'll be on the scene with College Game Day and all that stuff and reporting from the stadium. I've got a photographer, Rob Gray, who's a fantastic photographer who will be traveling to the game, and he's going to be shooting it and uh, filing a game photo gallery that captures the whole day and the atmosphere. You can get all of that coverage at johnconzano.com. And uh, I got to say, for the people who, are, whether you're a paid subscriber or a free subscriber, I just appreciate that you're out there reading. And I'm having a lot of fun. As you know, uh, you know, I I uh, am on my own now, and I'm loving it and going where the stories are. And this week I'll be in Salt Lake City, and next week I'll be in Boulder for Coach Prime in Colorado as Oregon State is traveling to Boulder. So if you want to read any of that stuff and all week long, go to johnconzano.com. Um, earlier today, I tweeted out a video, and we've talked a little bit about this on the show, but I tweeted out a video of the president of Portland State, Ann Cudd. She is the president at Portland State on the job since August. And I have to say, in my time, in a couple of decades of living and working and reporting and writing and doing radio shows in and around the state of Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, that this is the first president at Portland State that I think knows their way to the stadium. You know what I mean by that? Like, like I saw Stephen Piercy, the former Portland State president, at Hillsborough Stadium for one game last year. But I never got the impression that he understood or respected what is essentially the front porch of his university. And I think Ann Cudd, the president at Portland State, gets it. I, I found it interesting when she was hired. I immediately went and I, I started looking up her background to find out, you know, what her what her history was and what her background is. Because from a Portland State standpoint, I think one of the biggest problems that Portland State has had is that just on the administrative side of the operation, they, there just hasn't been an understanding. There hasn't been an understanding of what is going on, what the challenges are. And frankly, there isn't a respect for what the programs and the athletes can bring to that university. You hear it all the time at Power 5 Conference universities and at some of the lower division universities who just get it. Montana, Montana State come to mind. You hear it all the time. They call the athletic department the front porch of the university. They understand that an investment in their athletic department, in support of their athletic department, brings a lot of different things to the campus. Now, some of it is that if there is an investment in an understanding and a respect for athletics, it's easier to generate student fees that support the athletic department because everybody feels invested, people feel connected to the athletic department, and it helps in that way. And I think Oregon State is a great example. Oregon State, Arizona State do great jobs of connecting with their student body and generating student fees that help support athletics. At Portland State, it is it has felt for years that the athletic department and the administrative arm of the university were literally on opposite sides of the street and i think you know i was really excited when i saw that ann cud got the job she's the new president at portland state because i knew that she had a background in athletics i knew that she understood athletics i knew that she had played sports i knew that she understood you know and, and her background really is in running and track and field and cross country but I thought to myself, like, there's a shot here 
that Portland State just hired somebody who is going to understand what the athletic department is trying to do and support what the athletic department is trying to do. And there was no greater evidence of that than the video that I tweeted out earlier today that basically just showed the Portland State president, Ann Cudd, like meeting a football player on campus in front of the Stott Center. Then you see her, she's in the strength and conditioning uh, you know, room, and she's deadlifting. And then she's in uniform at Hillsborough Stadium running onto the field in a Portland State uniform. First of all, the self-deprecation for a university president, and most of these presidents, you know Pac-12 presidents, Big Sky presidents, they're stuffy, they come from the world of academia, they're not relatable, uh, they, don't live in, they don't live on planet Earth. Like, you know, there's a big disconnect. But for the, 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 you know, her decision to do this and put herself in a position to uh, look like a real human being and have fun with it and make fun of the fact that, like, hey, university president is so engaged with athletics that she's willing to put on a uniform, pad, shoulder pads, helmet, run onto the field, work out in the weight room. Like, this was a really funny video, but beyond that, it was awfully hopeful, I thought, because I can remember the former president, Stephen Piercy, he showed up to that one football game, and I asked players, I said, how much FaceTime, how, how often do you see this guy? And they said, well, he came to one pregame meal, one spaghetti dinner. That's it. That's as much as they saw him. And then I can remember bringing him on the show multiple times, and he just gave us word salad. He kind of talked in a circle and didn't really say anything, wouldn't make any commitments, wouldn't really give the athletic department a vote of confidence. And I think that all becomes very discouraging, particularly for a program that is leaning into the university, potentially for student fees to help subsidize it, leaning into the university for, for support, and, and you know trying to make the athletic department, frankly, part of the college experience at Portland State. Yeah, I get it. Some people say it's a commuter campus. Not a lot of the students are living on campus. There's so a lot of people living in the surrounding area that commute in and they commute and they go to school and they leave. But that doesn't mean that the place has to feel like it's disconnected, splintered, and scattered. In the video that Portland State put out that Ann Cud willingly participated in was the first time I've ever seen a Portland State president put their arms around the athletic department. And this was a good thing. It should be celebrated. I'm efforting getting her on the show. I would love to talk to her about athletics. She seems to have an understanding. Her background, certainly, as an athlete uh, suggests that. But, you know, I also know she's got a really hard job, and she's got holes on her own budget to fill, and she's got, um, you know, the academic side of the operation to appease. And there's a lot of people in that community that don't believe in sports or don't understand sports or don't think it should be part of the university experience. And you know where I stand on all that. But I just wanted to give a fist bump, a high five, whatever it is, to Portland State and the president, Ann Cud, And people always say to me, like, okay, you know, you're, you're the only radio show that brings Bruce Barnum on every week. You're the only person that, you know, covers. There's some others out there, but you, you cover Portland State. You care about Portland State. Well, hell, it's the biggest public university in the heart of the biggest city in the state of Oregon. We should care about it. We should care about the athletes and the programs that are part of that athletic department. And, you know, frankly, those athletes have stepped up in ways that have inspired me. 
volunteering every summer at Camp Exceptional, summer camp for special needs kids. I've seen their hearts. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that Ann Cudd, the new president at Portland State, is just what the athletic department needed. All right, grab a podcast of this show. You want to hear the show in its entirety. You can also uh, listen to the interviews. They're broken out individually. If you subscribe to the podcast, you already know that. You'll get the Bruce Barnum interview. You'll get the Kyle Whittingham interview. It'll all be packaged for you. I uh, really, uh, really appreciate those of you who make this show part of your day. I know that, um, like the airlines, you've got choices, and I'm, uh, I'm humbled that you choose this radio show. We're back tomorrow. Jonathan Smith on the show tomorrow. Nick Aliotti, former Oregon defensive coordinator, on the show tomorrow. We've got big guests all week long. you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network.